This is the Kick Aspirational Podcast. We are live today uh, in Laguna Beach on the deck outside, not in a studio, but back on the Yeti mics. And I am so excited. We've got Chris Morrow back. Chris, welcome to the Kick Aspirational Podcast. Dave, great to be back, man. I can't believe it's been two years. <laughs> two years. I mean, you know, I just kind of like decided to to start podcasting. I think you were one of the earlier guests. Yeah. Thank you for for, uh, so. for doing that. And um, yeah, and, and we were just talking before this. You said then, uh, I think were you were listening to our last one. Yeah, yeah. Recently, I was listening your last show. No, I mean to the, oh, the our last, last one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I was just I was wondering. So when I went and I was listening to the one you did with uh, Aaron, um, was it Aaron? The, oh, Aaron James. Yeah, Aaron James. The surf philosopher. Such yeah. a good, yeah. And uh, I love that interview, by the way. So good. Thank you. Yeah, he's uh, Go back bright. and listen to that one. Yeah. But um, I was listening to that, and then I was like, I was kind of wondering how long ago it was we went on, and I'm looking back, and I remember <laughs> it was right after the last midterm election. So two years ago. So it was basically two years ago. So wow. I was just like, geez, what the heck has happened to <laughs> this world? It's gone so fast. Well, and I remember we did that, and... We had a great conversation, mm-hmm. and I think and I'm just doing it from memory, uh, and I may be wrong here. You might want to correct me, but you, you've had a uh, in case people don't remember. You were a professional surfer. You grew up in Laguna Beach. Yeah, professional surfer, and then you created a career in uh, for yourself in, in publishing. You were the yeah. editor of Surfer Magazine. Yeah, um, done a lot of really interesting things in your life. But I think uh, part of what I the the intent of that interview was to get to you know not only your your pro surfing career but then how did you make that transition to you know to a to a into the business world because right. I think that's hard for a lot of people yeah and, and surfing is one of the places where you know you, people don't always make that much money compared to other professional sports so you kind of have to have other things going you, on you got to have the hustle I mean yeah. it's it's funny because we always talk about it you know the 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 guys, our generation, we were very lucky. I'm, I'm 52 now, and when I was a kid growing up in, in, in this town, you know, pro surfing was like a dream. It was like it didn't exist. And the guys who were trying to make it happen, it, they were just hustlers trying to make something, and right. they were just scraping for food money, right? Sure. And But this, this, this sort of picture that they painted of what the possibilities are were so mind-blowing to us you know the the surf community at the time that we were all just bought in hook line sinker (laughs) it was that free ride generation with rabbit and sean and mr and and you know you got to put yourself back in that time frame where a surf movie would maybe come to town a couple times a year and where did they show they show it in the theater they show it at the high school yeah they would show it at the high school sometimes it would be down at the theater but it was just a raucous party you know i mean people would come from all over the place and smell you know, some joints in the. It in was the, just, you know, <laughs> I, if you've never been in a movie theater where the lights go down, the beer bottles are, you know, the beer bottles are clanging, cracking. the smoke's <laughs> rising, and the first image of the guy on the screen in the whole theater shouting and screaming, you know, oh, it's like it's amazing. I don't know what other kind of communities have that, but in the surf community, I mean, you just get chills down your spine. I mean, it's basically Warren Miller ski films, yeah, exactly. or surf movies, right? Yeah, it's, those yeah. are the two communities that I think really have that. They did. They sort of pioneered that thing, and it was such a party to have that kind of thing and and in a way you know we were all the world was so much bigger then right and images 
were much harder to come by. Right. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, when you think about it, you're like... Getting to Indo was a real deal. It I mean, was a huge deal. And, yeah. and, and just seeing a photo in a magazine of something you hadn't seen before because photos were in short supply, which is a hard thing to think about and ponder now. Like, you know, they're so ubiquitous, we swim in it all day. Yeah. But imagery, that's why the magazines were so meaningful. You, you know, you'd wait 30 days for a new magazine to come out and... And at the, you know, if you counted up all the photos in that, it's like that's like about twenty minutes of your normal stream right now. Oh, it's a, yeah. I mean, now it's just like nonstop <laughs> and cheap flights, or you know, it used to be pretty easy to get around. Yeah. Um, there's a uh, Joseph Conrad wrote Heart of Darkness. Yeah. Uh, you know, great book. And that that book starts out, and he talks about how when he was a kid, there were all these white white spaces on maps. Yeah. You know, oh, the gosh. unnamed parts of the, of right. the planet. Yeah, which you know, and he kind of comments, and this is hundred years ago. He's right. saying, you know, how it was all being filled in. There wasn't anything left to explore. Exactly. And there's plenty to explore. You can explore your own neighborhood, as we're finding out through COVID. Yeah. But I think you know this um, this whole idea of you know, if you look at like the yeah the you know that that free ride generation where they were discovering Indonesia, they were discovering Uluwatu. Mm-hmm. Where by the time I got there, they already had pongas or those those huts <laughs> yeah. all over the cliff, and yeah, you, know, exactly. you could buy breakfast there and rent a board and get photos taken. Right. Um, no, I mean it's you know in the grand scheme of things, it's like look in the surf world, there's still a lot of white spots left on that map. Right. You know, and that's one of the things we learned, and that's one of the things I learned being at the magazine as long as I was. I mean, you know, we were there when. You know, guys had been surfing Chopu and all that for a long time, but we didn't understand what it was. Right. You know what I mean? Until 1999, and then it was like, you know, all these things like that that wave in Namibia that they found basically on Google Earth yeah. on a magazine contest and that kind of stuff. It's amazing. You know, and, and um, well, even now people are discovering parts of Alaska oh, and, yeah, and Iceland and yeah. Can- I mean, the Great I remember Lakes. going up to <laughs> Canada and you know on. Um, in 2000 and being with the Brewweiler brothers who were up there sure and they had this map in Vancouver like this yeah. it's like or, a uh, six foot tall map on their on their wall yeah of, of Vancouver Island and um, and and basically they just it's like okay here's all the spots we've been and you look at the thousands of miles worth of coast up there that they can't even you know just on Vancouver Island just on Vancouver Island yeah you know what I mean and the, the waves they've discovered since 2000 yeah it's just crazy Spend but they're all life. really hard to get to yeah you have to have a boat and it's pretty rough water it's and open ocean stormy stuff and yeah you know, it's high, high adventure. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, there's bears. I mean, it's, yeah, totally. it's, the, it's a, again, it's like the real deal. It like is. You're, it's the real deal. It. But you know yeah. what? When you're in a barrel and you're looking out at a snow-capped peak, it's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool experience. Well, I, I, we talked about this a little bit last time, but, um, you know, when, when we made Unsalted, you came and uh, surfed the Great Lakes That's with right. Vince and, and yeah. some, of the, some of the crew. Yeah. I don't think I was at that part, that that section of it but um that was hilarious yeah but that's another kind Uh of you know well the one the people there are so friendly have so much stoke oh the best yeah basically just looking at wind directions and it's like real short hits like yeah it pops up and drops down you know they're some of the best surf forecasters around the guys on the great lakes (laughs) because they have to be so on it things come up and go down really really quickly and the wind switches directions and so yeah i mean they've mastered it and and um 
it was so fun to kind of get plugged into that community and meet those guys. Because once you meet one of them, you're basically part of the tribe, you yeah. know? They, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm still on Facebook with <laughs> yeah, right, like, right. <laughs> all these guys who I don't even think I ever met over there, you know? Sure. And it's so funny. And you look at some of those things that these guys are doing on Superior and that kind of stuff, and it's like... You know, that's their version of the mentalize, you know, going up there. It's it's great. Going to Stony Point. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, it's it's their own version of extreme too, right? Like we were in we were screening that in Honolulu, I remember, and there were Hawaiians, you know, watching it going I'd never do that. You know, <laughs> we, we were like, well, I'd never ride some of the ways you guys ride, but yeah. they're like, I'd never go in water that cold. No, you know, there's I know. ice forming on you. That's such that's actually honestly one of the things that's so wonderful about surfing is how how different the experiences, how many different experiences it has to offer. You yeah. know, um, not just on the on on what you're riding, um, the waves you're riding, but the equipment. You know, and, sure. and you mix all those equations together. There's there's an endless series of combinations there, so it's pretty fun. Yeah, and uh, I'm going to apologize for some of the background noise that people are going to hear. We are doing this podcast outside, <laughs> and uh, so you're going to hear like planes go by, and probably helicopters and it's probably trucks. Some plane flying a banner, you know, through the fog right now. Nobody can read it because it's like <laughs> so, foggy on the coast. So, <laughs> there's a the, the marine layer of fog yeah. came in uh, last night, and it's still kind of here. It's burning off slowly. Yeah, it's almost noon. And uh, we're sitting right, uh, our new place is right at the coast here. It's so cool. So it's uh, very rootsy. But uh, I thought it'd be fun to do something live and outside today. Heck so. yeah, man. This is this is awesome. I love it. It's like old school Laguna. This house is, you said it's 100 years old? Ni- well, it was, yeah, 1921. So it's almost 100 Jeez, years old. It's yeah. right there. That's Single amazing. wall construction. So the board and batten you see on the inside is the same you see on the outside. You're basically just glamping. <laughs> yeah, we are. <laughs> <laughs> in the sweetest spot ever. Well, we've been. It's a cool. It, people can't see it because we're. This is audio, but it's a. It's a cool double lot for Laguna. So it's got a, a little grass lawn. We've got a big porch. Yeah. We've got a backyard, back cottage. It was originally three units. Um, it's so two cool. buildings, but we just had Sarah's fiftieth birthday party out here. <sighs> Intentionally tried to keep it very small. Yeah. Uh, we're not of course safety perfect. factor. Yeah. Yeah. We had. We have three units, so we could have 30 people, kind of technically legally. Right. All outside, face masks when people nine. weren't eating or drinking. And um, we had a Prince cover band. It was very, very cool. And it was <laughs> so cool. We had a great time. And nobody complained. Very, I think, reasonably safe. And uh, how are you your know? neighbors? Good uh, neighbors? <laughs> hey, <laughs> you go. neighbors are good. A, a friend of ours just <laughs> rode by on his bike. Um, so, yeah, no, it's. it's uh, Neighbors are great. Yeah. Uh, nobody complains about noise late at night here, That's uh, which cool. is good. Yeah, we, we Man, like to get Glad festive. I'm not your neighbor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would invite you over, and then you can't complain. That's, yeah, exactly. That's part of the, part of the deal. But um, So we, we do invite our neighbors over, and, and then people tend to be pretty cool about everything. And we don't party too hard. But yeah. but I guess the point is that I thought it'd be fun to get outside and, no, and love uh, it. have a conversation, especially yeah. about surfing. Yeah, man. It's... Um, it's been a it's been an interesting few years in the surf scene too. Obviously, like that, uh, everybody's kind of freaking out when, because Surfer Magazine shut their doors. Yeah, that's a big story. Like Surfer Magazine, which started what 1959, uh, 60, yeah, 1960. Yep. Yeah. Um, and I mean, this is the literally the bible of the sport. Yeah, I or mean, at least it's, it was it, the first magazine. It was the first surf magazine. Yeah, the, and fir- the first sort of like regular circulation magazine, and so it. it it held a lot there's a lot of reverence for it for yeah. for years and years and obviously 
you know, it's been a struggle for any media business. The media as a whole has just been, you know, just traumatized by the digital age. And, and it was sort of a long time coming, unfortunately. Um, what was the story behind it? Like, what actually caused the... What was the, like, the straw that broke the camel's back? Uh, well, it's a triple whammy. I mean, on the one hand, you have just the general media business, which is far less profitable than it used to be because of digital, right? Newspapers are going yeah. out of business. Magazines are going yeah. out of business. This is, this is happening There was a the lot of inflation in print media. There was a lot of, a lot of margin in print yeah. media back in the day when you right. could sell an ad for a two-page spread for ten grand. Right. You know? Um, those margins aren't there on digital. When you have analytics, it tells you exactly how many people saw it and, you know, what ages they are and where they are. Right. Um, it tends to, you know, get get drilled down as far as the value. And so that's a hard for, thing for them to recover from. But then the other thing is just the onslaught of, like, if you think about, like we talked about earlier, how rare it was to see photos. I mean, it was a it was an experience. Every month when that thing came out, you were running to the shop to go oh, check yeah. it out. It was, a, it was a cultural experience and just cultures changed you know my kid's 15 i remember when he was about eight he goes dad what are magazines for what are you magazines know? for <laughs> yeah, like he didn't understand because he was like he's on getting an information on his tablet you know yeah. like he's learning to read and whatever and he's just he's like well why would i pick one of those up you know and <laughs> i can't honestly say that i've ever seen my kid with a magazine in his hand right you know what i mean either of my kids my my son's 15 my daughter's 12 Right. And so it's just, it is what it is. And, you know, they, they saw that years ago. I remember reading an article about somebody who was doing a commencement speech at one of these Ivy League schools, and he was talking about, you know, the media, this, that, and that. We had to preserve these things. He's like, he asked, he did a poll question. These college graduates, how many of you have picked up a Time magazine in the last year? Nobody raised their hand. Nobody. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, but they still have the Time 100. If you're on the cover right. of Time, you're like one of yeah. these yeah, yeah. exclusive humans. Which is, you know, it, it's it's interesting, but it's um, it's uh, it's where we are. You yeah. Know? It's where we are. No, and so, I mean, so that's... Uh, Glenn Rogers is one of my partners. Is owned. He actually ran Prime Media at one point, which was oh, did he? owned um, Surfer. Yeah, owned our group. Yep, or was a publisher then. One of the many. He yep. owned Variety. He owned a bunch of different things. But um, you know, he he's transitioned largely out of that into digital properties and that sort of thing. And I, I think uh, it's interesting talking to him about the good old days when right. these you know these all, all these publications, newspapers, yeah. magazines were just printing money, literally. Oh um, yeah, they were. They were just just printing cash. Yeah. And, and, you know, even the early days of digital, because when I left Surfer, I went to work for a company. Um, I partnered up with these guys who, um, they had sold their music company to Yahoo, and it became Yahoo Music. And um, and then they started this little action sports portal called Grind TV, and they wanted me to come and sort of run point on the editorial. It was kind of a little social network thing. And long story short, we became partners with Yahoo Sports and that and so for seven years my job I actually worked pretty pretty uh day to day with like front page teams at Yahoo whether it's sports and news and everything and so it was really a pretty interesting education in mainstream media and how they work because at that time like you're talking 2010 to 2015 area um Yahoo was like the homepage that 99% of the world kind of used as their 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 uh their screensaver, you know, right. like you turn on your computer and it's the first thing Yahoo you go pops to. Up, yeah, yeah, it was sort of pre pre Google almost, really. Well, yeah, I mean Google 
didn't really have like the news sort of like feed thing, you know, and yeah. Yahoo had their whole deal. And so you got a story on Yahoo front page and you were guaranteed you were going to get 2 million hits in a day. Amazing. You know, and so it was a interesting world to live in, you know. And that's when it was almost, I mean, Facebook was just kind of coming. It was just becoming they were just more beca- mainstream at yeah, that point. They were just getting coming on and Instagram was just a barely a blip, you know, yeah. a twinkle in the eye. And, yeah. um, and uh, but it was all changing pretty rapidly, you know. I mean, at the time, I remember when I joined, Yahoo used to only have four stories at one time on their front page. And that was in their carousel. And so if you got one of those four, it was massive. I mean, you were just yeah. like, boom. But then, you know, they grew it. And they were, all of a sudden, it was this carousel that just kept spinning. And they just kept, it at, they kept adding it. got to 12. And then it got to 20. And then it got to 40. And then it got to 50. Oh, wow. And so, you know, it didn't mean you'd get more hits on the front page. But they wouldn't do as much. Right. But the algorithm, if your story was clicking well, it would sort of lift it. You might go on live at 50, and then if it was a great story, it would surface its way up to number one or two, you know, if it, wow. if it depending on how it was clicking. And if it was a bomb, it would just fall off. And um, you learn a lot about American consumption habits, what yeah. people are interested in when you're when you're looking at those algorithms and what's clicking and all that kind of stuff, and you're looking at traffic all day long, and it's very... You know, while the platforms have changed, you know, now sure. all that's has moved to social media. Yeah. All the habits and the biases and all that kind of crap are all the same. Well, it, I think that's fascinating. You know, the um, the social dilemma has been a big film this year. Such a good film. Yeah. Um, I think in particular, you know, one of the big insights was that people who watch different or get their news from different sources right. have a fundamental different have different realities. Right. Yeah. Hundred percent. Part of the reason they can't talk to each other is yeah. because. They're not. They're not getting the same information at all. They can't right. even agree on like what a fact is, right? Exactly. And and yeah, it's like you're both swimming. Everybody's swimming in toxic rivers, right? Like each river is poisoned a little bit. Absolutely. They're it, very biased. Yeah, yeah, they're very biased. And if you don't spend some time in the other river, you know, you don't you don't have the top. You don't have like there's the, no common ground. Yeah, yeah, there's zero there. And so, yeah, it's 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 a really troubling thing. And I was actually I was glad that. It was nice to see in that movie that some of these big tech people were really speaking out about it and taking issue with Creating it. Creating organizations to try and correct it. But, yeah. but you, you know, you worked, I heard on one of your things, I mean, you were, you worked for a congressman and all that. You know what it's like to, yeah. to, to try to get things passed and all this. And, and it's really, I, I struggle with, you know, how do you solve this problem? How do you get out of it? Because as you probably know, when you try to regulate something, the whatever market or industry you're trying to regulate, those people who are dominating it ultimately become the regulators. Right. And then they just entrench their power. Right. And so that's what's that's the the, the scary thing is like how do you solve this? Well and, and I think too, you know, um, regulation works when you can manage something mm-hmm. um, or you have clear clearly defined boundaries and it's not terribly dynamic. Right. I think one of the challenges, and this is part of where the social dilemma came up, there was no ill intent in how Facebook became the size it was or how it was selling ads and allowed Russians, as an example, right. to, or and Chinese and other people to create a lot of disinformation. Right. Um, it was just the nature of the beast for them. It's just how they, it's how they organically ended up where they were. Right. Emergent order. Yeah. And I think where, what was interesting about them, the other thing that I thought was really interesting is you had people who were behind the scenes who were, you know, kind of, you know, pulling the strings effectively 
starting to recognize, hold on, hold on a minute, we're creating behaviors, we're creating right. realities that are kind of unintended. Right. The unintended consequences. Exactly. Yeah. The unintended consequences. And that's, um, you know, and that's a real problem. And so they started to talk about how do you, and I think this is where a lot of like gamification is headed right now with value mm. reinforcement networks. Yeah. Um, and one of the big keys is transparency. Like, yeah. I mean, most people want to create new behaviors, new habits in their life, but they also, if new habits are being created, they also want to know what's behind it. Like, what's right. the intent? What are the values? And, and how is this happening? Right. And so that you can kind of deliberately do it rather than have it happen to you. And right. I think where people got have get, gotten very concerned with social media incorrectly is, wait, what is? how is this shaping me? And is this the way I want to be shaped? We're all part of this giant scientific experiment. We're <laughs> all lab rats. Right. And they're just studying, like, how we're all being divided and going, oh, you know, and and some people are probably happy with how where it's going, and other people are, are really upset, and uh, it scares me. I mean, it, it really does, but um, at the same time, uh, you know, I look around, and it's no different, right? You could swim in that river of pessimism and, and look at the world and go, oh, my God, everything's going wrong, and blah, 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 blah. Conspiracy theories and all this. Yeah. yeah, or you can swim in the thing and look at yourself and go, you know what, man? We're living better than, than you know, kings and queens, you know. We're li- as Pete Holmes, a good friend of Pete Holmes says, we live like pharaohs. Yeah, right? we live like pharaohs, I can exactly. walk in this single-wall wooden <laughs> yeah. tent that I live in right now and open that fridge and I can buy, yeah. you know, food from all over the world. Exactly. Right? French champagne and, right. I mean, caviar, for whatever. You can just, anything you want can right. be in that fridge. And yeah. Gelson's is two minutes down the street if I want something else. This little thing right here. You know, this phone is just like I have access to so much stuff. Oh, yeah. You know, this is it's been around for what? Think how inexpensive these are compared to what you have used to have (laughs) to buy to do all these things. Yeah, imagine if you had to buy the entire Encyclopedia Britannica, (laughs) then plus stereo, (laughs) you know, phone, a television, a movie, a VCR. I mean, all the things that this does is amazing. Yeah, and you know, that's where. It's part of the revolution, right? I mean, it's it's a huge part of it. I think one of the scary things, um, I think you've talked about it too. Maybe you and Aaron did on this, but you know, the scary thing is every time there's this massive technological advance, there's ultimately some type of revolution that follows, right? Right. And um, so we're, you know, this is the challenge of our age: is how to how to how to wade through it. And it's funny because. Um, you know, as surfers, I always go back and take this very, you know, 30,000, 60,000, 90,000 foot view of the earth because it's like, I look at the spinning globe and the weather patterns and the earth is like, at the end of the day, the earth is, the weather is all about, it's trying to equalize. Right. Right. Everything's trying Nature to equalize. Nature abhors a vacuum. Right. Yeah. It never does. It never will. It <laughs> right. never can. Right. But it's trying. Right. It's and always trying to, yeah. To we're no different. Right. Right? We're no different. We're trying to come up with all these ways, whether it's governments or algorithms or this and that, to try to figure out how to equalize stuff. It's not going to happen. No. There's always going to be change. There's always right. going to be disruption. But, right. all, but we'll always tend to want to equalize but when we're things But we're always going to want. And where, where you see, you know, where you see 
where you see in weather, right, where you see a really big cold front go up against Purple a warm blobs. front and yeah. those and that <laughs> friction and those storms that are created right there, it's the no different in human nature where you see a really rich area butting up against a a, a, a poor one, you know, whether it's, it, it, that's where, that's where the struggle is, you know, and that's where the conflict is. And so yeah. you could break that into neighborhoods or countries or however you want to do it, but it's well, interesting. I was joking with my wife, you know, we were talking about, you know, security and where we live versus where we used to live. We had a bigger house that was, you know, more yeah. robust, I would say. And uh, now we're living in this you know, historic single-walled construction. You, know, you, you can just kick through a wall if you want to yeah, here, totally. right? Yeah, totally. And uh, probably easier than it looks. And, um, you know, and so we were talking about, oh, how safe is it to be? You know, we're, we're in a very kind of public area here at the beach. And I said, you know, I think when people walk down the street, if they were get, actually thinking about robbing a house, this isn't the one they'd pick. <laughs> this is like, <laughs> it's like the 100-year-old shack is probably totally. not have anything in it that you need. Yeah, no, you look pretty harmless right here. I think your, your other house was, yeah. That's way more likely people are going to be rioting out front. <laughs> yeah. I was pointing out to her they'd have to walk up a pretty steep hill and riders don't tend you're to up, want to do that. At least you're on high ground up there. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny because I, uh, I was working on a podcast in- interview with Chris Malloy, who's a famous pro surfer. Oh, yeah. The Malloy brothers. Yeah. He's the sort of leader of their tribe. And he, he lives on this killer ranch up in Los Alamos now. He's a full sort of return to his roots, farmer kid, you know. They all kind of grew up on North yeah, they like grew up in, in Central California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they grew uh-huh. up in Ohi back in the, in the 70s, you know, and and it was... Um, they were like roping and stuff, right? Yeah, full on. You yeah, know, they were... And so, you know, Chris is right back in that world. He's got like 30 cattle, a bunch of horses, oh, she, wow. this, that, and his wife runs like a farm that she... They have like a full farm-to-table thing. And, Does he still surf? Oh, yeah, he surfs, you know, but he's... Uh, but farming's like a full-time job. It's a full-time gig, and getting his place set up was a, a lot of work. You know, they moved there, and, and like you, they for the first year, they were basically glamping <laughs> in this... Um, in this uh, what are those round things called? I'm trying to blank. Oh, like... Uh, um, the yurts? A yurt. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So it's sort of like a giant yurt. Which is basically a big felt tent. Right, yeah. and... Um, and they lived in one of those for almost a year while they were building their house. And now their house is built, but it's like, man, I know where I'm going if shit goes down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can eat. You can you can eat and at least they you're probably eat. have a free few. You know, if you're a farmer, you got to have some guns. Yeah, so he's probably yeah. yeah. There's weapons stashed all over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're on yeah. high ground. You can see people coming a mile away. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have a we've got you know we have friends all over the map politically, and which mm-hmm. I love. And one of them is very concerned about conspiracies and, um, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and what's going to happen right um, right now with the elections. And, uh, you know, I won't divulge too much, but uh, one of the comments was that, you know, this person just started learning to use a nine millimeter to hunt when the food scarcity hits. And I was <laughs> I was reading that and I was like, well, I mean, that's if that's what people feel I need to do, right. I'm go for it. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure I'd hunt with a nine millimeter, but uh, no. there's better weapons for that. But yeah, but it was it was it's just interesting to see where people's heads are at, and right. and um, and you know I think there's a lot to be said right now for some self self sustaining behaviors. Um, oh yeah, for yeah. sure. It's it is pretty funny because uh, you haven't heard a whole lot of talk about gun control on this in this election cycle, right? Because because with the COVID thing happening, well, gun sales are through the roof and ammo sales. Everybody's like, well, you know what? Maybe those do make sense. And I mean, you go to the gun stores here in Southern California, they're sold out. Yeah, they're sold out. And uh, I've never fired a gun in my life. Really? Never, never fired a live round. And so my wife is like, we got to go. Like, you have to do it. She she's done it. I've never have. And um, they scare me. But 
you know. It's, well, it's good to be scared of guns. Yeah, um, you should be. They're dangerous. Yeah, for sure. So, um, but it, it, it makes sense. I mean, I get, I understand why people are feeling that way. But again, it goes right back to that social media thing where we're being fed a diet of fear every day. And that that is, you know, I think a lot of our problems today are a symptom. You know, everything, it's just a symptom of what's going on in the media landscape because they need clicks now and, yeah. and they, they need clicks to earn money and to survive and you don't get clicks without scaring the crap out of people or making them angry. No, exactly. I mean, look at, look at the news media. I mean, uh, I don't care what people watch. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've talked about this before, but you know, you on one side, obviously you have Fox news, which is mostly editorial mm-hmm. parading as news. And on the other side, maybe, I mean, I think CNN, as problematic in, in the same way. They have a lot of editorial parading as news. It used to be all news. Um, I, I kind of talked about the fact that when I was traveling internationally during the last presidential election, yeah. I just shifted out of Western, like t- domestic U.S. TV news entirely. And yeah, you the get the longer TV- form stuff overseas. Yeah, like I, you know, I like to read, but I also like, it, if I was going to watch TV news, I would either watch Al Jazeera, which mm-hmm. sounds crazy, but... Right. It literally, it's most some of the most objective news, particularly about domestic U.S. politics. Mm-hmm. Or I'd watch um, BBC, you know, because yeah. they both tend to be more objective-oriented news sources rather than, you know, heavily editorializing their news. Yeah, it's tough, and I think I think where I'm where I am personally with all that is I, I it's for me it's almost come down to the individual journalist. Yeah, you know, um, because. Even in the last few years, I've seen these ones that I've, I used to trust. And, um, you know, the cancel culture is kind of affecting everybody. Yeah. And, and including these news, news, these news right. agencies. And so, you know, a lot of these cherished institutions have kind of just, like, really shot themselves in the foot. Look at the New York Times. Yeah, the New York Times said on their editorial page that they're taking their handcuffs off on their on their news pages. Yeah, which is just and like, editorializing, which I yeah that was like the New York Times was like yeah. the history of America yeah. because you could trust it. Yeah, and you're just throwing it out the window. You know right. what I mean? And so, so to me, I think it's really you know, uh, we're in this thing where the monopoly board is being thrown up in the air. Yeah. You know, the pieces are all flying and this is media institutions, this is, you know, company, whatever you want to call it, all of them. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, the people who have a record of trustworthy listenable content yeah. and or readable content where it, it proves over time to be correct, yeah. they're the ones who are going to stand up. And it's funny because, you know, who this is, little universe, the podcast you? one, yeah. to me, the most fascinating ones are the ones where there's people on representing both sides. Right. Right. And there's having this really civil discussion. Yeah. And what I like is it's not a war footing. It's really like, okay, how do we solve this? How do you build common ground? And you build common ground. Right. And, and those to me, um, are, are the savior for me and my sanity is listening to these people. Because, you know, if you get into the, into the war footing stuff, which is what most of those like media companies have become, right? They're all like, I'm either team blue or team red. Well, and the the owners are, you know, you you can see who owns it, (laughs) whether it's a Murdoch or whether it's, you know, uh, Bezos. And you kind of know what their media outlet's going to be presenting. Totally. Yeah. And so, um, but when you have, um, whether it's Rogan or Dave Rubin or (laughs) any of these guys or whoever it is, it's like they can bring whoever on. Yeah. And, talk to somebody but it's like it's a civil discussion right and when you challenge somebody um and to come up with better ideas but it was funny like 
I mean, this is going to sound weird to a lot of people, but you know, if you listen to the media, a big chunk of the media, you they they, they you know, a guy like Jared Kushner, who I've never even heard a peep from, right? Yeah. Like I'd never even heard a peep from the guy, and I heard like the um, I heard this hour long interview with the guy, and he was just talking about you know the Mideast policy stuff that he was involved in and why they got this way and whatever, and I was like. Man, that guy's pretty freaking smart. Yeah. I, I don't care what you say. He he was pretty smart, and I was like, it, it gave me a, actually a little bit of comfort that there was somebody that smart somewhere in there. Yeah. Um, because it doesn't look like that on the surface, you know. Well, yeah, and I think people were concerned about his qualifications beyond being the, for sure. the president. Yeah, um, and I I think that, but I think that goes for anything, anybody, right? Like, um, and it, it's it's one of these things where, uh. I just think you have to keep, until you listen to those people straight unfiltered and hear straight from their mouth for an extended period of time, yeah. you know, long form, uh, it's hard. You can't trust what you're, what you're hearing about them. Yeah. And you know, in, in that case too, like, you know, I, I, uh, I, I always wished, to, I mean, I actually took the foreign service exam. I, I was, you know, at one point I was, uh, I sat interviews for the OECD, um, didn't actually end up. I had some friends working there. Uh, some things I had a car accident. Some things happened, so I didn't didn't do that. But the, um, the OECD is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, right? Um, big uh, kind of economic diplomacy group in Paris. But the um, you know the, I was my older son is now dating a woman in the same graduate school program whose grandfather was a very well known diplomat, and her father uh, was lifelong career diplomat she grew up all over the world and yeah so uh it's been fascinating i read her grandfather's book um uh called behind embassy walls Mm -hmm. and part of what you hear from career diplomats and i've I've known other people that i've worked with overseas who've been career diplomats and then came into the private sector so a lot of them say you know it's one thing to be a business person overseas and be representing your own personal interests. Yeah. It's, and, you know, and you have a lot more flexibility. It's a lot harder when you're trying to represent global U.S. interests yeah. and do it in a way that isn't reactive or, you know, that's really kind of, from a diplomatic point of view, trying to massage right. you know, into, into situations. And uh, Well, yeah, it's like define American interest, right? Right. You know, that's a, that's a, that's a loaded term. Sure. Right? And, and that's a... Well, and diplomats in particular are, are apolitical, you know. Supposedly. I don't think there's any such thing as apolitical. I mean, his, well. <laughs> there's good di- diplomats. Like, I was, you know, I was, I was mentioning to you the guy, um, I didn't even know until my wedding day, yeah. right? Um, this, this one of my wife, you know, you get married and it's like there's these people who show up that are like your, your wife's side of the family. And it was funny because my uncle comes up to me. He's like, God, I'm sitting next to a pretty fascinating guy I'm all really who is it and he's like it's Bill Studeman he was deputy director of the CIA yeah ran the NSA yeah I'm like what <laughs> I'm like how's he here and like I'm all like asking my wife I'm like who is that guy she goes oh yeah he's kind of my uncle yeah, wow. <laughs> you know well, well and, and to that point I mean when you're talking to him if he's in that role yeah even at a dinner conversation, he will probably say nothing political. Oh, no, he's such a diplomat because he's right. worked under many different administrations from differing views. Right. For, he's retired now. Right. But we we got to spend well ten years ago. We went out there and spent a couple weeks with them, and then we and then we did the same thing last year. Oh, cool! And it was so fun to just pick his brain. You know, he's in Maryland, and we got on his boat. He took my kids out, and the whole deal. And 
and he's just a wonderful human and so fascinating and to get his perspective on what is going on today and you know you and oh, you know me, dude. I'm like, so what do you think of this? Like, digging in, And yeah. you're always trying to dig, and he's just like, oh, well, classified, classified, classified. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's had this remarkable life. You know, he grew up, when he grew up, when he was a kid, uh, Charles Lindbergh used to hang out and come over for lunch every day because his wow. father was the guy who basically set up all the big international airports for Pan Am Whoa. in the early days, you know? Whoa. And so he had this global sort of upbringing, you know, because right. of his father and who he was. And right now, I mean, he's retired. His biggest his biggest pet project is getting this whole Pan Am project put in the Smithsonian, you know? He's, oh, wow. It's really fascinating. That's my one. I wished I had been able to fly Pan Am. In my, I never Back flew in Pan the day, Am. I know. Yeah, it's yeah. like, oh. But, I mean, think about what a juggernaut that was, you know? Oh, my gosh. It, it, was, it was huge. Truly global. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think uh, he feels very much the same way you and I do. I think it, it's, it's, it's troubling, I think, to see, you know, because when you look at, when you say career diplomats or any career agency thing, you know, like how many people are in the federal government? You work there. I think it was like at last count, it's like 20 million people are federal employees. I, I don't know the number, but it's a big number. It's yeah. a massive, you know, and you think about that's a massive voting block. It is. Well, and there's I, one of my pet peeves are government unions. I don't understand. For sure. How did that I mean, ever? FDR was a, was pro-union, but he was anti-government union. Totally. For, because he how was... can you have someone, how can you be lobbying yourself? Right? Yes. There's a huge conflict of interest there. Such a huge conflict and of interest. And I think it, it ruins... Education, it ruins anything it touches, more or less. Well, and that's where, you know, not to get into the weeds, because we're talking about surfing, but it's like, (laughs) when you look at, like, I I always look at these things like systemic racism and everything like that. I go, well, if there's a private company right now that's just flagrantly racist, how in the hell are they surviving? Right. You know what I mean? Like, nobody in the world would let them survive. Yet, to me, it's the institutions in our government that are, are, where it's like, they're, they're so hard to move. They're like, you know giant titanic type ships that you cannot turn on a dime and you know if you want to look at systemic racism I, I, even the school system you know, they, even they all operate off values right. right and those values have biases and I, I had Kelly James Clark on a professor who studies bias and things like this and you can actually go to, there's a Harvard test you can take to, to discover your own bias right and he said this really well he said you know the challenge is with, with, with personal bias or institutional bias is you don't see it right Unless you deliberately look for it, right, right, and so like people who literally are racist, yeah. don't think they're racist, right, uh, because they can't see it in themselves, right. You know, somebody's seeing it from, uh, from from afar, effectively. And I think, I think that's like one of the big problems with bias or systemic racism or any of those things. Unless we're actually trying to dissect ourselves to see it, it's you'll never see it. Yeah. And so to your point, like. I think everyone's trying to figure it out right now. Well, I think everybody, what everybody would like to know is, well, define racism. Well, that's a moving target, right? Yeah, because the goalposts keep moving, right? right? And and I and, think that's... And you and I are never going to win. Right, <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah, and so I think that's one of the problems. Um, but, and then the other thing, too, I think we all think, every one of us goes, oh, no, I'm politically, I'm right down the middle. Like, have you ever met anybody who goes, oh, I'm super ultra left or I'm super ultra right? No, no, nobody. <laughs> they all think they're middle. Like, they all think they represent, like. Or they think they're outside of it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe this and that. But, yeah, it's it's a, it's an interesting time. No one thinks they're extreme. Nobody, yeah, nobody thinks they're extreme. But but yeah. your friends all think you are. So, yeah. yeah your friends are like, you got some problems. Um my own bias is I am natively kind of a libertarian, small L, not part of the Libertarian Party. I just don't tend to like 
a lot of government intrusion in my life. You and I are the same way there. Yeah, right. And I think most people don't, but they want it on somebody else, right? Yeah. Well, I think this COVID experiment has been so fascinating to me because this brings up the 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 elephant in the room when it comes to that. It's it's the safety versus security thing, or the liberty versus security thing, right? right? And um, and then there's this there's this whole thing on whether uh, you know, is the is the cure worse than the disease kind of thing? Right, right, and so well, especially when we don't know how bad the disease is, right? I mean, right. that's been a big problem. Is the data has been all over the place, all over the place. It's yeah. like, yeah, we don't need masks. No, we do need masks, and then it's like we're going to have a vaccine. We're not going to have a vaccine. I'm going to take this vaccine. I'm not going to take. Right, you know, it's like what? And so, yeah, you, naturally, everybody. And and let's be honest, the. A lot of it's been politicized as well. It's, well right? that's, I so think that's part of the problem. It's is a huge part of it. Heavily politicized science never works. Right, yeah. right. And um, But to your point, I mean, I, I'm the same way. And I think where I feel um, hopeful, and it's probably super way too naive, is that, okay, you know, you've got a lot of people in Silicon Valley who are very smart. Right. And they're very interested in, in efficient higher value like their whole thing I mean Silicon Valley success is making our life easier and making things happen faster and imagine if you could bring that kind of nimbleness and everything to governments you know agencies or whatever and make them more efficient and effective right because as you know you've been there it's like the problem right now is they just reward failure. It's like, right. oh, it didn't work. You need more money. Right uh, here, you know. Well, well, there's 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 no risk and reward equation, right. basically. Right. Um, well, and and there's ultimately no reward. Right. And it's a big downside on risk, I should say. Yeah. So, like, you know, we used to when I used to sell into large organizations, we had kind of code names for different types of people we were talking to. Yeah. Yeah. So Brown Shoe was somebody who was like a bureaucrat who didn't want risk. Nice. But the last thing you do is tell them they were going to hit a home run if they bought your your software. Right. Because I freaked them out. Did like, it really? They just wanted to know that everything was going to be okay. I'm not going to lose my I'm job. Not going to lose my job. We're <laughs> right. going to keep kicking the can down the road. Right. Um, that's that's the and, paralysis. And that's, yeah. that's you know, and, and well, and when you look at who do you attract to a government bureaucracy, who wants that type of work? It's probably not you or me. No, it's the person who just wants the same thing. They wake up every they day, and I don't want change. Yeah. I just want I just want to work for my twenty five years, get my pension. Or, or maybe they start with these, you know, this aspirational value that they want to change the world, so they're going to go into government service. I mean, that's the people you want there, right? But then they get there and they realize, holy cow, this is a machine that does not it just grinds it out every day, and I'm just a cog in it. You're and then s- yeah. they end up in the same spot because what else are you going to do? But somebody above you goes, don't, don't rock the boat, dude. Otherwise, you lose this. And you will never out. get promoted, right? Yeah. Yeah, you'll never make it, you yeah. know? And, yeah, there's freaking 20 million of those people. Yeah. And that's a scary thing. And, you know, like the alphabet soup of agencies that we have who are, you know, the thing that I, you know, as a, like like you said, as like a, as a small L libertarian, the agencies who are unelected, like unelected bureaucrats who have the power to mess with you. Right. That's a problem. Well, and, and I think going back to like the social dilemma conversation. Yeah. You... We are creating behaviors. We are creating a gamifi- gamified process. Yeah. Right? It's, a, it's a very 
I mean, bureaucracies are defined by process. Yeah. There are incentives which effectively gamify them. Yeah. And there's ultimately there there are values that are being reinforced and behaviors that are being built because of these entrenched uh, bureaucracies. And I think to your point, a really good question is, I mean, one of my questions is, you know, would I donate to this agency if it was a nonprofit? And the answer <laughs> is generally no. That's horribly <laughs> really ineffective good. and That's, inefficient. That is such a good way of looking at it. And I think the second question is, are the values that this organization you know, are reinforcing and the behaviors that it's creating, Right. this is what we want for America. Right. Um, I mean, my big question right now is, and, you know, as a libertarian, I can't believe I even say this, but, you know, how do we build a country again? How do we, unif- how do we create unity again? Right. And, and I've been kind of arguing with myself and other people, and I'm not sure I'm, I'm getting this right, but my thought is that after reading Hillbilly Elegy, mm-hmm. um, which was a book about a guy who grew up in you know, multiple cycles of poverty, yeah. parents weren't home, raised by his grandparents from Kentucky, moved mm-hmm. to southern Ohio, um, you know, he realized if he was, he did get into Ohio State, but he was smart enough to realize if he went there, he would flunk out because he didn't have the discipline. So he joined the Marines. Mm. Um, and he said the best thing about the Marines was they dictate your life. You don't have a lot of room to make decisions. They're going to make, they're going to help you make all those decisions so you can be part of this unified yeah. whole and get the mission done, right? Right. Um, and that gave him enough discipline to go to college later go to law school, yeah, and then he had to learn a lot of the social things. You have to learn to be a successful attorney later, but uh, you know, his journey is really fascinating. That is. He said, look, I'm not trying to be descriptive, but what I'm trying to you know, explain is that these cycles of poverty have all of these Complex. pieces and parts yeah. that you can't just simply, you can't fix by throwing money at it, you can't no. fix by putting somebody in a simple program. It really right. has to be holistic. And so part of what I've been kind of talking about or asking questions about is what do you think about some kind of a a mandatory program where every kid in America has to spend two to four years working on some problem, mm. whether it's environmental, teaching, mil- it, pick, pick something, yeah, and spend a couple of years yeah. working side by side, hand in glove with people you didn't grow up with, yeah, learn about America and learn that you can make a difference. I think those things, you know, it's kind of neat when you look back at FDR and how many, how much he threw at the wall, right? Yeah. Creating all these things and Tennessee which ones Valley stuck, Authority, which ones didn't. Stuff, you know? yeah. but it, and I mean, I have tons of problems with some of, the, a lot of stuff he did, but you know, you gotta give him credit for, for, for trying, trying to, to do all out. these things, right? And, and like, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I was just thinking about it. It's funny we, we talk about this because it's like, look how fast they built the Hoover Dam and, and all those projects during the Great Depression. And it's right. like, it took us, what, 15 years to rebuild the tower after they got knocked down right. in New York? You know what I mean? Like The, the Twin Towers. The yeah. Twin Towers. It's like, you know, what? what's happened to where we can't move fast anymore? And some of that's great, you know, especially when you're talking about conservation and everything like that. Yeah. But at the times, it could be it could be your worst enemy. You know, I feel like we're we're pretty litigation snarled or whatever. But you're you're to to your point though, yeah, I think that would be I, I don't know if it should be mandatory, but it would be nice if if these you know, so many of these kids that you mentioned that like this in that book who were poor kids and they see the military as maybe one of the only ways out. Right. But wouldn't it be great if there was a way where they could go an avenue where they didn't have to have a gun? Right. You know what I mean? And they could be working on something else. Didn't have else. to be military. Right. It could didn't be have education, be could be an yeah. environment, could be a variety. Right. Where of it was something where it's like, hey, here's this army of people and we're going to try to be solving this problem. And 
yeah, I think that's kind of the stuff that's, um, that interests me. And I think, I just think, you know, it would be really nice if there was some way to just rip the guts out of a lot of these agencies. I'm just talking about anything that's service related, you know, um, you, any, cause as you know, it's like, well, even going to the DMV, what a nightmare. DMV, what, exactly. Yeah. How it runs, you know? It's like, I, I, my license came up this year. I got to do all this crap for that whatever, what's oh, the new the, ID yeah, thing? For yeah, for the real ID. And it's just, it's such a shit show dealing with that kind of stuff. Oh, and, yeah. And Especially now. Yeah. And then, you know, same thing when you're doing your taxes, this and that. And it's like, imagine if, you know, when we talk about an infrastructure bill, and, and, and redoing the infrastructure bill, if you rip the guts out of every little government service that has, like, some online component, and you really kind of streamline a lot of those overlapping ones, because there's so many overlapping right. ones, um, that would be a massive task, and it would threaten a lot of jobs. And budgets. And yeah. budgets. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the the country would be better served. I mean, if, if, if the people who want a stronger government, right. they want it to be effective. Well, and I think to your point, like, you know, if you look at big corporations, when somebody wants to shake it up yeah. financially, yeah. they go to zero-based budgeting. Right. Where you don't get to base what you get next year based on what you spent last year. Exactly. You start at zero, and you yeah. have to justify what you actually need, right? Yeah. Can you imagine if that happened in the government? How, <laughs> like, just the screaming, like, Washington would be in flames, you right. know? Right. <laughs> it would just be that whole Virginia, Maryland, all those, all those neighborhoods. But it, it is revealing, like, when, you know, during the big crash of 2009 or 8, you know, one of the only places where home values actually kept their pace or went up was, like, Virginia, Maryland, D.C., yeah. DC well, they've had a huge boom, um, you know, well, one, because the size of government has right. spiraled out of control, but also because rest in Virginia is where May East is, you know, the big internet hub, so... yeah. The, the Silicon cool. Valley of the East Coast is basically, yeah. you know, for Northern Virginia. That I love that to, area. Yeah. It's really, it's, I mean, it's cool to hang out there. I don't know if I could pull it off, but I, we lived as a in surfer, Baltimore and DC when I was young, and, uh, and then I lived there again later. And I sort of, I sort of hated it. Um, I liked it later when I was older. When yeah. I was, was a kid, I just didn't really like it that much. And um, especially versus living on a lake in Michigan yeah. and you know woods and all that stuff. How old were you when you were there? We lived in Baltimore and DC from like basically just after I was born. Uh, my dad was in medical school at Johns okay. Hopkins, and then he was in uh, the Air Force for a couple of years because of Vietnam. Wow. So okay. we were at Andrews. And uh, so Baltimore and D.C., like six years until I was about, yeah, until I was about six. Wow. Okay. Um, and then I moved, I lived there later when I was uh, kind of in between college. Uh, in between, co- I was got kicked out of one college, went to another. But uh, which so one was the one you got kicked out of? Wheaton College oh, you, in Illinois. You did? Yeah, yeah. Man, I can't wait to have you on my show. Because <laughs> <laughs> your that's story, story is yeah. so good, man. It's got so many twists and turns. It's awesome. But it's a fun one. But but I guess the the point is, you know what's fun is you can get to like uh, Nags Head and Duck and and uh, Hatteras pretty. You know, it's pretty few hours. Yeah, yeah, like two to four. I think it's about four hours if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a weekend. You can get out there on the weekends. and No, I know. And that's, I've got friends nowadays all up and down the East Coast. And, and um, I remember just completely mocking it as a kid. Just like, yeah. oh, I would never want to be back there. And <laughs> I remember East Coast Surfer was a, was a pullout <laughs> yeah. in Surfer Magazine. Totally. It was always black and white. And yeah, it's like never this looked very good. thing. Yeah. But, you know, the, 
the surfers back there in the surf communities, and one of the cool things, obviously, is as you know, as a Great Lake surfer, that when the wetsuits got better, oh man, and how everything. things just exploded back there. Um, our, our younger son lives in Paris, and I just sent him um, a new four mil with a hood uh-huh. for winter. Oh, you did well, and and because we surf up like in Northern Cal in the summertime, yeah. So like we were up at Sea Ranch this summer, and the waters in the fifties. How far up is that? That's three hours past San Francisco. Oh, okay. Right All on right. the like Mendocino Sonoma border, but um, so it's always cold up there. Yeah, never gets warm. Never gets warm. But the, you know, the four mils now. If you have a four mil with a hood, it's warmer than the six mils used to be, oh, and for so sure. flexible. For sure, it's it's remember night O'Neal animal day. skins. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I laugh um, down here even in the middle of winter, Southern California, because it's like it really just. Yeah, there's some cold days, but the rubber. Now with a two mil or a three two, and you're just they're so flexy. It's it's like my go to is a two point two millimeter, a full suit two point two that Isurus makes it. But it's like such a warm. The rubber's so much better. It's so much more flexible. It's thinner. Yeah, I mean it's just it's amazing what you can get away with. Yeah, and you know to your to your point, circling back to the white spots on the map. Yeah, what that's done to. For the exploration people, you know, it's like now it's like Newfoundland and Iceland and all these places that are really being scoured. That's amazing. You know, because 10, 15 years ago, well, 20 years ago, we just weren't really looking at that stuff in depth. It was more just very novel. But now it's like there are full-on guys on it all the time. And they get, I mean, I was just talking, Our uh, Ben Young is an artist who rents our, our back cottage for a studio. And... He was, you know, he grew up in Newfoundland and St. Croix and kind of around the east, you know, he lived yeah. in New Jersey surfing. Um, and he was saying, you know, Newfoundland regularly gets 15, 20 foot surf, you know, whenever they get these big storms. I've got this photographer friend who, who you've probably met him before. Burkhart? No, Burkhart's the classic too. Yeah. But um, do you know Yazzie? No. Oh, well, Hans Hagen might know him. I think yeah. he's maybe done a couple trips with him. And or maybe I've met him with Hans. It's a familiar name, but I, I don't know him well. He's a, I don't even know if I've actually met him in person yet, but he's. we've been communicating. He worked for me at Surfer. He was just this random, really strange character. You get a lot of strange, sort of funny characters <laughs> okay. who email you and stuff when you run a <laughs> magazine Surfer, like Surfer. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, it's a very tight like, club. Yeah, yeah. And you, you know, you get these people just like, hey, I'm thinking about going here. <laughs> and... You know, you're like, yeah, 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 okay, whatever. And then somebody will just send you a little pic, and it'll just rock your world. Yeah. And he sends me pics of areas up in that neck of the woods that just, you're just, you've got to be kidding. Mind-blowing. Yeah, mind-blowing. And so, you know, as much as we've been um, around, a lot of these waves, you know, the bummer about a lot of these waves is they're not... They're not super consistent, you know. They they all have their season and their their few swells a year where they turn on. But right. just to know that they're there is kind of comforting. Yeah. And there's a lot of those, man. I mean, look, we live in Laguna's. It's a cool little town. Yeah. But anybody who tells you Laguna has good surf is tripping. No, you know. It, it's, no, we joke about it. It's <laughs> it's literally it's like uh, what do we we call it? Um, uh, what do you call the waves here? Uh, just like little out of my novelty head. waves. Yeah, novelty waves. Yeah, yeah everybody yeah. says that we have novelty yeah. waves. Yeah, it's reef all, breaks. They're yeah. weird. But you know, it's like, what do you need to survive? What do you need to be happy? You have a novelty wave in your backyard, and I rarely leave. Yeah. I surf here more than anywhere. You're, yeah, you're stoked. Like I was really, you know, my my parents they're in South Laguna, and I still surf on the beach out in front of their house and Three Arch. Yeah, and it's it's. I like, was surfing there they, this fall. It's amazing. They, in September. They had, it, it was one of the best summers ever. Oh my gosh. And. um 
I don't know why. There's more sand. Everywhere else is getting robbed of sand. And for some yeah. reason, there's more sand in there than there's been in my entire life. It's amazing. And uh, and so my birthday's in the summer. And, and I, like, it was amazing. It was, like, it was... I don't know why I deserved it, but I got this complete solo session, and it was perfect on my birthday. And I was just like, thank you, God. Well, <laughs> what did I do to Just to put this in perspective, so Three Arts is a beautiful <laughs> beach. It's a gated community, so yeah. it limits access. Yeah. Um, and it's like this big, massive cove. It's actually two coves. Yeah. Um, yep. But there's a big cove. Right. And the surf this summer... I, I've lived here almost 20 years, never surfed there. I've yeah. been down the beach a bunch, but yeah. it's never, usually it's not a great place to surf. It's right. like, no, it's horrible. Close out, body, totally. Warm. Yeah. This fall, like, <laughs> one of my buddies lives there. So, I mean, you know, Spike Atkinson. Yeah, Spike's so, legend, yeah. Yeah, so Spike's like, call him yesterday in. walking his dog. My dog's yeah. trying to attack his, yeah. Yeah, Spike's <laughs> awesome. But, you know, he, I was like, I had like probably a month of passes from him. He was like, dude, you got to get down here. I was yeah. like, really? And I'd get there and be like, Tube Central. It yeah. was incredible. Yeah. It's funny. Um, it was... Uh, the word kind of got out, though, this summer, because by the end, it was the most crowded I've ever seen it. There were, and, yeah, there were... And there, and there, and it's it's kind of amusing to me, because it, it, it makes me happy and sad. <laughs> you know, I grew up with so many kids in that neighborhood. We, you know, the, in the 70s and early 80s, it was, there was probably, you know there would be 50 kids at the bus stop, but there'd be like 200 kids at these, at the park in the evenings in the summertime. They had these things called park night because it was just, there was a whole generation of us that grew up in there and a lot of really talented athletes came out of there. Gold medalist, Olympic volleyball players and pro volleyball players and major league baseball player, you know, hit a game run, game winning homer in the World Series. Yeah, Barry Hill. Just all the whole thing and, and Parsons was in there and so we, so much fun and then it, kind of dried out in the 90s and 2000s there was yeah. like no kids and now all of a sudden the mama kids there's again. just a full on just new generation in there and they're so sweet and you're like you're trying to like enforce the rules and you're like you can't there's some little 12 year old kid smiling yeah. at you well, like, I was, I'm always caught you know when, when I go to somebody's private effectively private beach yeah. um, I'm always a little careful about you know yeah. wave selection and you know being cool with everybody and but the thing I love I so a lot of the new like I think they're middle school age kids uh-huh. that I see out at Brook Street and places where you right. used to see a lot of middle school kids yep. or like at Second Reef on bigger days yeah um, I'm, I was seeing in there too and I was kind of like oh that's kind of cool like I don't think all these kids live here but they're all figuring out how to pilfer their oh, way no, in yeah. and they get all, the waves it's, it's somebody calls them in that there's a lot of parents who just they're like, hey, my kids have been locked up too long, and I need my kids to be socialized and, and, and see each other and, you know, sun and, and fresh air, and I'm not afraid, so, you know, call them in. Well, I, you know, I was thinking about that. The, uh, I was driving past Creek, Salt Creek, yesterday, and thinking about how during the lockdown, I used to park in the Gelson's Monarch parking lot and sneak down into Creek that way because they had to shut yeah. down all the parking, even though the beach was open. Yeah. And uh, that's how I was getting my fix. It was a little controversial at the right. time. Yeah. Because <laughs> nobody knew exactly how yeah. the COVID was transmitted. Right. And I was just thinking in retrospect, like, I don't think I've heard of anyone getting COVID outdoors, surfing, or hiking, you no. know, it, where you're 
just not naturally on top of other people. I mean, look, it's Monday morning quarterbacking is tough, and it's like if you think about it, we're in far more danger now than we were in the spring. Right. Right. In terms of the spread, right? The spread's way up. The, the death rate's way down, but the, the spread's yeah, way up. Yeah, the spread's way up, and the death rates are down. So, so you know, we may have gone overboard in, in the spring, you know? Um, yeah. Well, but, uh, yeah. But it was like everybody understood at the time because at the time it was like, holy shit, you know, is this... When you had is Italy this, melting down and Is all this kinds 1917, of you know? It was yeah. like, I mean, I was hearing uh, there's a woman, um, a family up the street from us in Three Arch, and... Um, one of the daughters, she's like, you know, my grandma died in the 1917 pandemic. Or her, no, great her grand, grand, yeah, great-grandma got the symptoms in the morning, was dead four hours later. Yeah. That's how fast it happened. Right. That, that one was killing people. Right. And so, you know, back in April, March, April, when this thing was really starting to hit, and there was really not very much understanding. It was like, okay, I, everybody was kind of on board. Yeah. Now there's like this mix of sort of fatigue and, you know, like I said, <laughs> is no the one cure wants to go worse than the disease? Again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is the, you know, and so it's, it, you, we, at, some else, at some point you got to cr- climb out of your hole and, and get on with life and be like, hey, well, are we going to have to live with this the rest of the way? Or? Manage some risks here. Yeah. I, well, and, and I'm not a doctor. I'm not a virologist. Um, no. I'm hopeful that... Uh, you know, seeing, especially in Europe, in the U.S., seeing these huge increases in the spread over the last couple months mm-hmm. and the death rate staying really low. Yeah. I'm, I'm hopeful that it means the virus is mutating into a weaker version. Something like that. And, and Also, I think they're treating it the better. the treatments, yeah. I think they know what what works a little bit better and all that kind of they stuff. They have antibodies, they have remdesivir, yeah. all that sort of thing. Yeah. It's it's going to be another interesting year, man. We've got, we've got, a, we've got some interesting times we're in for sure you know so, so let me go back um how did you make the transition from pro surfer to journalist you know it's funny because when i was injured once while i was on the tour um I, it wasn't actually an injury it was a skin cancer thing on my back and okay. I, I i had like a little cancer scare and i was out of the water for about a month and a half and i was totally you know at the time it was scary because it came back like, hey, you have melanoma, and you need to go to fly to D.C. My parents were freaking. My dad's a doctor, too. Yeah. And um, and they were going to take, like, an 8-inch chunk out of my back. Whoa. It was it really... Well, melanoma, you don't want to mess around. Yeah. yeah. And so... But this was pretty... If you go back now, it was kind of early days, because that was, I want to say, 1989. Okay. Um, 89 or 90, okay. right in there. And um, my dad finally got a hold of this specialist in dc and he's like look your son doesn't need eight inches cut out right right? and um i mean i was prepped for surgery my dad called and canceled the surgery right before i went under the knife wow um anyway uh it was a smaller procedure and i was super happy everything was cool but i had missed a bunch of contests at the time and back then there was like 30 events a year you miss four or five is this the qualifying tour or the, or the CT or was there it? was no there was no difference back then the tour okay. was all the tour it was like there were 30 events they all counted yeah you, any you know you went you just went through the trials so they wow. had the trials right there and it's, how many people showed up for a contest then? you'd get a couple hundred usually wow. you know and you had to have a certain ranking to get into the even just get into that right right like you had to have uh, like you get on the bud tour NSSA right. or something to qualify so so um but for the most part, if you could show up, you can get in the trials. And sometimes it would be the trials for the trials. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, anyway, 
I was sidelined, and I'd been in some uh, some other events before where I'd done well, and the camera crews and everything would come and interview me, and I would just always make the most of those opportunities, just sure. be silly and goofy and do whatever. And so one of the guys who ran the production crew, he's like, Chris, you know, you're really good on camera. You should you should think about trying to do some stuff. And and so I ended up. Um, working for him part-time when the bud tour was on i was like i would surf in the events but i would also be the beach commentator you know the sideline reporter guy right at the end of the day and so um i i got a gig doing that and then one of the other things you know around here i was fortunate enough to live right next to two of the the magazines you know surfing right. magazines right down the street especially um, from three arts here in the south end of laguna right. and it's and surfer was in and, and dana Sur- point yeah dana yeah, point so so you're right in the in the heart of the surf industry and uh, one of my really kind of father figures growing up was a guy named Larry Moore, who was a legendary photographer. He's, he passed on a long time ago. And uh, I, uh, Larry, we, we did a little trip down to uh, Baja once with a crew and, uh, and scored just incredible ways. And he's like, hey, I have enough Wait, photos here to do a flame. feature. Yeah, flame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, He's like, we have enough photos from this, from this to do a little feature. You want to write something? Oh, cool. And it was that simple. And it was just like, so I'm all sure. I'll take a s- s- spin. And and I turned in my little article, and I made it as humorous and entertaining as possible. And they were just like, dude, this is awesome. Like, you gotta you got to keep doing this stuff for us. And so they just kept feeding me assignments, you know? Who was the editor then? Um, so it was Dave Gilovich, who runs oh, yeah. Surfline now. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was kind of the, the, the main guy. And then um, Bill Sharp, yeah. who, who does the... Big Wave Tour now. He did the Big Wave Challenge. He was a, He's a kneeboarder from Newport who was on the national team, but he worked at Surfing Magazine forever. Um, he By was like way, my direct guy. What happened to kneeboarding? I know. I know. When's <laughs> you know who's John Burns in three yards? Yeah, John Burns is an insane kneeboarder. So good. I used to, I grew up yeah. from my parents' house staring down at John Burns. And you know, you, you see these drone shots today of like guys getting barreled and you're looking through the roof of yeah. the wave. I used to, like, you know, we'd be up on the cliff. It's pretty high up. I'm looking down at Burns through the barrel like that. I mean, he he and this other guy, Clark, who lived on the top of the hill, they were like my heroes. Yeah. My absolute heroes. And then not only that, but you take John Burns, he goes to the beach, and he'd slam the volleyball straight down, and he's like 5'3". He's like a spud web of the, of the volleyball <laughs> right. court. So Great it was like, yeah. you know, we're, we're a very well-rounded little beach where everybody does everything. You, know, you, you, you surf, you skimboard, you volleyball, you go cliff jumping, you do whatever. Yeah. But, um, yeah, he's a stud, man. I was in Tikihau. I went on a Quicksilver trip with him in Tikihau. And, oh, really? And, you know, he was his hip wasn't good then. I think he's had hip surgery since then. So his, you know, when the waves were small, he was, like, riding a longboard. Yeah. And then and he was didn't look that great on it because his hips yeah, weren't his working hip, well. Yeah. But when it turned on, like, Raymond of Ambassade would be pounding on our doors on, our, on the boat, being like, <laughs> brothers, awesome. brothers, it's 10 foot, which means it's, like, 20 foot faces. Oh, and geez. it's scary as, you know. Yeah. Little, little, uh, How long ago was that? That was, it was when they had the Helmana, which was, it's probably like, I want to say like 07, okay. 08, That's cool. 07, yeah, maybe 05, I don't know, somewhere in that range. 
when Quicksilver was still Quicksilver yeah, and they yeah, had money was, and boats yeah, and cool they, stuff. They still had money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah dude, it's so funny because, yeah, Burns, was, that day I was telling you about my birthday day, the next day Burns and I were like the only guy that we had. We shared one of those same deals and we were just like, I'm like, this is like old school. Well, he was charging like massive Tiki How. It's That's a big reef, reef break in That's know, really Tiki. cool to hear. And, uh, Do you guys have photos of that? Yeah, I've got a, I've got a book of some photos. Was That's Spike how, on that trip? Spike was on, yes. Yeah, oh so God. Randy Hild set up our portion of it. Yeah. Who used to be yeah. a three yards Roxy, guy. Yeah, yeah Roxy. Yep. Um, and it was Spike and John Burns and a bunch of that crew. That's um, a yeah. really good group. That's such a cool crew, and, yeah. But the uh, but it was funny because I was, this, so this fall or whatever, September, I was out there, I guess August, September, whenever it was, you know, pumping, and I see Burns out there. Oh, you like, did? Yeah, and he's on a new board because it was barreling, yeah. you know, it was really good barrels. And yeah. he, I'm like, I'm like, wow, John, good to see you. I'm like, still riding an e-board. I'm like, you don't see that much anymore. And I'm like, wow, this your board looks a lot like the one you had in Tahiti. He goes, it's the same one. <laughs> because nobody's shaping them anymore. <laughs> no, anyways, it's a big segue. But he, that, no, yeah. he's the, yeah, he he was one of the originals, man. And, and, and you know, there used to be a John Burns at every spot. Sure. At, at least every spot that had a barrel. You'd be a guy on an e-board because yeah. you're going to get better barrels. Yeah, the yeah. photographer, Hank, you know, he's a legendary Hawaiian photographer Hank now. Photo. But, yeah, what's that? Yeah, Hank Photo. He was a yeah. he was the Salt Creek kneeboard guy. You know? Oh wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, he was a full on it's snack cool bar guy. Hank. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's a lost art. It should be coming back. You know, given now somebody given some hipster should bring that back. Right? Yeah, like <laughs> you've seen everything come back. The Aleas and all this stuff. But where's the where's the kneeboard? Yeah, yeah, body surfing. All this catch stuff. surf maybe should come out with a soft version or something. They should. That's a good talk, idea. Talk to George. Yeah. Um, so let's go back to so so you basically became a journalist because you were in the middle of the sport. Yeah. So you were an authority to talk about it, and then you just started learning the craft by doing it. Yeah, so, the, I mean, the other big shift for me was, um, I mean, my parents were always, they were hard, they're pretty hardcore conservative, you know, dad went to full ride at Yale Medical School and the whole deal, wow. and, and and my brothers who were older than me were, you know, Stanford, Oxford, that kind of stuff. And so when I went the surf route, my parents were just like, whoa, dude, like, who is this? You know, it was, there was a lot it's as of... as bad as being an artist or a comedian well, or something. Was, yeah. There was a lot of, like, do we have to throw this guy into some kind of, you know, treatment center? You know, <laughs> he needs help. whatever. Yeah, like, he seriously needs help. Like, this kid is the black sheep of our family. And, um, and how and, many siblings did you have? Well, I'm number five of six. Number five of six. Yep. Yeah, so I'm number five of six. And... Um, you know, when they finally, when I brought, started bringing home a paycheck and I showed them a contract and I was like, hey, look, I'm going to feed you tomorrow. Here's how much they're paying me and everything like that. They're like, oh, geez. This isn't just goofing around. Yeah, I was like, yeah. okay, uh, well, you know. And then at that point, as they sort of slowly came around, it was like, well, look, man, enjoy this while it lasts. It's not going to last. And make the most of every opportunity you can and just make sure you're educating yourself and like hey and you know truth be told I didn't even really turn into a voracious reader and start until I started traveling right. you know most of the time I was in school I was such a little surf Nazi I didn't want anything to do with my books because right. they were books that I didn't necessarily care about it didn't connect to anything I didn't to connect and and but when I was traveling like you know back when I started traveling in the old days you know there was one movie on the t on the screen in the, in the <laughs> yeah, airplane, and right. it either sucked or it didn't. <laughs> yeah, right, and that's right. a long it was ass flight, man. Back then. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like you couldn't turn your phone on, you couldn't do anything. So if you didn't have something to read, yeah, you know, you were screwed. And, and so traveling with books, traveled with books, and so books became 
kind of my life, you know, it was like I was such an impatient little shit kid and the only way to kind of to 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 endure suffering, which is what a lot of travel is, right. as you know very you well. Burn time. Yeah. yeah um, was just I'm going to just observe, immerse myself in this world, in this totally different world. I'm taking myself out of where I am, and I'm going to transport myself into this story and this book. And so that's where I really got into it. And then, and then, um, and then another friend of mine, Dave Parman, who's a really good writer. Oh, he's brilliant. Yeah. He, he was, became my roommate when I moved to the central coast of California. And he was my shaper and, and that kind of stuff. And he was somebody as well who, who just, you know, Big helped reader, me sort right? of find my yeah. voice and like what it was as a writer. Like how, here's what you need to do. Um, what you need to look for, what you need to avoid, and all that kind of stuff. And I'm a hack writer, like a complete hack in the grand scheme of things. And thank God for copy editors because I'm like the messiest person in the world. Um, but I mean, I I feel like I could spin a decent yarn yeah. sometimes, and um, and um, I feel like. And you can pick stories. I, I, I can yeah. pick stories. You know what I mean. And and you know a lot of this is just these learning from all these weird jobs I've had. Whether it's being an editor, you know, there's something. There's one thing to write something. It's a whole other thing to be an editor. Right. And then it's a whole other thing to be a packager right. trying to sell something that you think is going to work to a bigger crowd. Right. And I've played all those roles. Right. I've packaged stories. I've created stories. And I've edited stories. And when you kind of run through the gambit, you learn a lot more about, um, you know, what works, what doesn't, that kind of thing. So did was, so it sounds like so you talked about working with some of the production, the film or video production. Yeah. And then. Writing some stories with Flame. Yeah. Um, how did you get a How did you get a, an actual job at? Were you yeah, surfing for at surfer, surfer? Yeah, for surfer. Um, yeah. Well, it's uh, so. So it started with the surfing guys, and I did a lot of freelance stuff for them. And then it eventually, you know, surfer started calling, and there was a lot of little magazines around back then that would be like, "Hey, you want to write something?" and and so I just kind of I was mercenary, just like sure, you know, write stuff for. Um, anybody you know who who i was interested in if, if, if it if it paid and right. so for me um i was uh i was living on the central coast and my and it was funny because i'd had it after my pro career i actually i didn't go directly into media i was a sales right. rep for billabong that's right we talked yeah, 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 yeah and so so and it was this whole thing where it was like making great money, money yeah. and the whole thing but i was like literally about a year and a half in just totally depressed because i wasn't surfing anymore right and it was one of these really early lessons in life where I was like, man, if you're not on your path, right. it doesn't matter how much you're getting paid. Right. You know, at some point you're going to break. And, and I did. And I was broken. And I was like, I was so miserable. It was like really a, at the end of the day, I look back now, I, that was depression. Yeah. You know? And I was too young to, to, to know. Right. But, um, but you knew you didn't feel good. I knew I didn't feel good. And it didn't matter how fat my wallet was. It didn't matter how big my house was. It didn't matter. None of that mattered. It was like, and so I went up and I moved to the Central Coast. And I literally, my plan was to go back to school. And I was just sort of, I st- managed to shop up there. And I had a very simple life. My rent was three fifty a month. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, and and that was with Dave. You were living with Dave. And yeah. Is that when he had that that shack house? Yeah, I've, I've, yeah. They call it the Lazy White Cap. The Lazy White. It was wh- this, like it was this little ranch house on the outskirts of town, and it had a you know big plot. And the, we converted the barn. You know, Dave made the, the the little barn, which was the garage, sort of his shaping room. And right. So it was very morning of the earth. Like it was. I mean, you're out in the green hills, and 
and I think I visited him there roosters and yeah. and the whole thing and and um, it was quite a thing and it you know the house kind of became my house for half the year because Dave married Rel's son. And he so he moved to so to he Hawaii. moved to Kaha. Yeah, and um, and then they would come back and stay there for you know they they'd be roommates for half the year, but then the other half of the year I'd have it to myself. In Hawaii, yeah. And so it was a great setup, and Dave was really sort of helpful for me. I, I shaped boards up there. Um, I was writing, and then I was managing in the shop, and it was a, I mean, it was a college town. And yeah, it like, it's, a, it's a cool place. It's to a live. cool place. You know, I, I tell every kid, I'm like, well, where do I go? Do you go, dude, go Cal Poly, Cal Poly, go. Like, yeah. you know, it's like, you yeah. won't regret it. You know, it's such a cool zone. It's such a cool yeah. zone, and um, and it's a good school, but um, but yeah. So then the the, the offers start coming in, and honestly. It was funny, in the, uh, I got a call from Steve Hawk, who was the editor of Surfer Magazine at the time, and he was he's Tony, Tony Hawk's, Hawk's older brother. brother. Yeah. Um, great writer, he, great editor. Great writer, fantastic writer. And um, and he was like, hey, there's a, a job opening here. Um, do you want to throw your name in the hat? And the first time he called with that offer, I was like, no. I, I, I was so in love with the Central Coast, and I was really enjoying what I was doing. I'm like, I, I'm not ready to go back, yeah. you know? Um, and then a couple years pass, and and uh, I got a call again. He's like, "Hey, here's the deal. I'm getting ready to leave. I'm, you know, so there's going to be a job opening, and um, I, uh, Evan Slater is going to be the new editor. He was the guy who took the spot the first time. Yeah, yeah. And um, but he's like, he a goes, well, we we need somebody to kind of, you know, be work under him. And you interested? And at that point, I was like, okay. You know, so <laughs> so that's how it came to be, and then you know I ended up there for ten years. Yeah, yeah. And it was like ten very exciting years because the industry, the surf world, huge shift. was, you know, there was a lot going on. I mean, it was like uh, one of the first trips I actually organized was that September sessions trip with Slater oh my and gosh. Machado and Dorian and those guys. Because um, by the way, my favorite, yeah, probably my favorite surf film. It's such a good, you know, and I always I always tell people I go, I go, hey. You know, Current and Aki were supposed to be on that trip. Wow. You know, I, I, I mapped that whole thing out, and they pulled the plug, like, literally within 24 hours of going. And it became the momentum generation, right? I mean, it's like Jack Johnson and Kelly. Jack Johnson was Kelly's Machado. filmer there. Yeah. Like, I didn't even know, you know, I was living in San Luis, so all these guys, like, when Jack was kind of a, a North Shore a star, kind of underground guy on at Pipe and everything, I wasn't, I wasn't hanging out on the North Shore in those years, so... Um, I didn't know Jack until I went on that trip, and and um, and Kelly just brought him like along to film. He's like, hey, he's, I, is it cool if I bring a filmer? And I, we had to accommodate everybody. He was like yeah. kind of managing the stars, you know. So Taylor Steele's film guy was there. Kelly had his film guy. We had our own film crew, which was Sonny Miller. Gerlach on the trip. What's that? You had Gerlach was on the trip too, right? Oh yeah, Ger was on there. Um, Luke Egan. Uh, it, it was it was great, and and. And we just happened to luck into like some of the best surf Insane waves. ever, yeah. yeah. And um, and so that was fun. And then, but honestly, that was like just one of so many incredible little adventures I got to go on. And those ones are great from the celebrity side. But like, you know, I had just as much fun going to Chile with like Veronica Kay and and Kelly's brother Stephen. You know, like, yeah, right, right. And, oh, wow. and a kid Jeff Moisa, and um, and so or. 
Where'd you guys you surf? Know. Did you go south of, did you go down by like Wichapuero? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so, and then, you know, like those early days in Canada and Azores and, oh all, you know, all these places that you don't get to go when you're on a pro tour. And so when I look back now. Or you might not choose to go if you were just right. going on a surf trip. Right. And I, I look back at it now and I go, you know, it's funny because in a way it was like this side hustle thing where it was like, this is, this, that was my way of kind of extending my pro surf career in a way because it's like I got to do a lot better traveling and more adventuring and in a way that you really like to travel right um during those years than I did when I was competing you know because when you're competing you're very tunnel tunnel vision you're like, in okay, and out for the contest I gotta get yeah. ready for my heat I gotta go warm up at that wave I can't I don't have time to go surf this other way because I right. you know what I mean and and um you're surfing to win heats rather than surfing for enjoyment yeah, yeah. it's just a whole different mindset you yeah. know and when you know when you're coming to a place as a journalist a lot of times you're living with somebody on their couch yeah you're hanging you're seeing what their little migration patterns are like you're understanding where they come from how they arrive there how their neighbors came from what you know you're learning so much about the place right and um and well, then you also you study the history of it, the right? History, yeah. yeah, I mean the, the politics, all yeah. this stuff. All like that. that stuff. Like Jeffrey's Bay is one of the most fascinating places in the world in that regard. Why is know? that? Just because it's it's um, you know, did you ever read like Missioner's The Covenant? I haven't read The Covenant. Okay, it's it's a really good one because it's like just the history of Africa, right? And okay. From the Afrikaans and the English and all that to the Zulus. And uh, the causes and, and just like you have all these factions and they all kind of right there in this tiny little podunk town of J-Bay, they were all having having their little clashes, right? Oh, and, because and that was so, kind of on the borders of all of it? Well, no, it's not on the borders. It's just in the middle of nowhere. But you had sort of this Afrikaner farm town that got invaded by these full hippies, you know, from yeah. international hippies who are very more enlightened. Yeah. And and then the Afrikaans had these Kazas who were sort of like their help yeah. who lived in the nearby shanty or whatever. But then when they discovered calamari and white gold in this area, all of a sudden the Zulu come from up from down the coast and all of a sudden there's this full war tribe between the causes and the Zulu. So you have right. black on black warfare, white on white warfare going on culturally yeah, in Jada. Yeah, 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 right? Yeah, wow. So you have blacks fighting blacks, whites fighting whites. You yeah. know, like they were the, Well you have Afrikaans which are like the farmers, the boors, exactly. and then you have the right. the, the English yep. um, exactly. South Africa, you know, yeah, South, South Africans. And, and yeah. so but you know, a lot of the, the transient sort of guys in, in in the day were Californians and Australians and all yeah, that kind of stuff. Totally different so, worldview. So it was this fascinating little period where um, things were blowing up and it was funny because the Afrikaans didn't like the surfers because they were going into the villages to where the causes were to go buy their weed and do whatever and <laughs> right, hang out right. and they were like inter- intermixing with the black guys and they were like no no you're not you know they didn't they completely frowned upon you know yeah. and and, uh, and then when the when the Zulus? When the Zulu came down and started, I mean, there's all these murders in this tiny little town. I mean, you're talking about a t- tiny little it's town. It's tribal warfare. Yeah, basically. it's yeah. tribal warfare. And so all of a sudden it was like the Afrikaans are asking the surfers like, hey, can you guys help us quell this, you know? And it was this whole thing where finally this community started to get along. And, and a huge part of it was um, Sharon Kroc, who ran the first Billabong store down there. And it was a whole thing where she... You know, she opened a store and she 
hired, you know, some of the young African women to work in her front counter. Oh, wow. And that was just like, and blew minds. And she blew minds. And, and like the Afrikaans were like really pissed, but they have this really cultural thing where they don't, they treat, they don't yell at women or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's all these really crazy dynamics. She and, knew how to manage that. Yeah, yeah. So she, and she really kind of, it, J Bay became really this beacon of, of, Change. Um, progress yeah. in Africa, and it, you know, and years and years and years oh. before the rest of the thing, before the country shifted over, right? You know, before, when it was, yeah, before yeah. Mandela even got out, you yeah, know, before apartheid ended, yeah, yeah, before apartheid ended, and so, yeah, you know, you talk about those kinds of plays, you go so deep into the weeds there, and there's so many great stories, and the story's still going, like it's, oh no, for, yeah, you know, what I mean, there's some gnarly shit that's happened in the last twenty years. Um, well, we, we were down, in, we were launching Excess in South in Southern Africa, and we were in South Africa, and uh, our driver was from Zimbabwe, you know, a black, and uh, we were driving down the Cape to, I think we were going to Gonsby for diving, or Moldenbosch for, I can't remember, we were going somewhere, and we were stopped for lunch, and I said, you know, why don't you come eat with us, and he said, uh, oh yeah, I don't, that, that doesn't really work, and I was like, well, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, you know, if, if I go and eat in this cafe and sit at the table, it's people will get very you know, nervous or potentially upset. I said, well, do you care about that? And he said, well, no, not really. And I said, I don't care about that. <laughs> you know, I mean, really? so he came sat and ate with us, but it was made Tense. a little awkward. Yeah. And I, but I think sometimes that's actually, you know, you kind of have to force those things or yeah. it's not going to change. Right. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's really, you know, uh, it's, and there, I think the thing about Americans, you know, for us, we live in our, our little bubble and, you know, you go to places. I, another trip I went on was um, was like Papua New Guinea and oh, wow. and, and that whole thing. And, and I didn't realize until I got there, you know, the tension between the Papuan people and the Indonesian whole right. deal and that rift because I guess they, you know, they're, butts right up into there's it, a right? separatist yeah. movement kind of thing. And, and apparently we were on this boat where, you know, the guy who had kind of been spearheading logistics on our boat was, had somewhat resistance background, you know? Okay. And so when I was going to ask if it was Jason Childs, but it doesn't sound like it. Uh, Jason Childs was on the trip. Was he photographing? But no, but he yeah. was, this This is a local guy. Okay, okay. Um, and so the local guy was, um, was when our boat broke down and we were uh, like kind of in this giant storm, blah, 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 needed mayday calls and Indonesian Navy and the guy was kind of like, he's like, okay, he was stressed because he knew he was going to be confronted, and, and it was a tense situation, you know, like. Oh, because he was part of the Indonesian resistance. Like he was resisting Indonesian. Yeah. Indonesian Navy was coming yeah, to pick you yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so. Did you have a sea anchor out? Were you like, do you have no engines? We had we, our our engines. It's a long story. Our engines conked. It was funny. This guy came up. We were six, seven days into the trip. Yeah. This guy came up from the bowels of the boat. I didn't even know this guy was on the boat. He was yeah. just black, soot-faced, like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. just freaking out. And uh, we were in the storm and just going sideways. Well, you probably, yeah, you went, you, you know, and you the, go breach because you're... You, well, yeah, you're you're basically, you know, if you were in the boat underneath, on the, below deck, and you were looking out the portals, you were looking at the bottom of the ocean and then the sky. Bottom of the ocean, sky. That's it was no just, bueno. It was so sketchy. And so... Uh, we threw out the dinghies, and the dinghies started pulling us. Right. But, the, but when we started, the dinghies were sort of fighting and um, fighting each other. You know, they were like 
they going different directions. Kind of going different directions, and the storm was like pretty massive, and these guys could barely. And the sun was going down, and the whole thing. And, and so the listeners understand, like when there's when you lose propulsion on a big on a good sized boat, right? And you're in a storm. the The storm will push your nose out of the wind, and you'll go you go you go beam into right. the, into the wind, and yep. you can flip the entire boat over and yeah. sink. If Easy. You're, that's yeah. why they have sea anchors or right. dinghies that you put out the front to try and keep the nose into the storm. Right. Yeah. yeah. So we we got the dinghies out, um, and then uh, we were kind of fighting, and we were trying to we were trying to we, the the scary thing is we were drifting out to sea, not toward the coast so you're getting blown out into so the we're getting ocean. blown out to sea further away from help and the and not only that the the we're getting blown down the coast and out to sea and the coast where we were was churning away from us like going inland into this giant coast so we were just going out to sea really fast yeah um which is not good because now you're going to be no bueno no one's going to find you yeah. yeah and so um you know ended up i held a spotlight i did like the full titanic thing you know where like <laughs> Right, bow the boat with a spotlight, shining a light towards shore where these guys driving the dinghies because it got dark, you yeah. know, and they had nothing, and it was just like just aim towards this light. But what was the difference maker for us was when we tied the two boats up, the two dinghies up to the same rope. Yeah. So then they weren't fighting each other. Right. But it took us hours to realize that, like in the middle of it, because we're like, we're like, what are these guys doing? Yeah. And I mean, dude. Mick Fanning was on that trip. Kieran Pro was on that trip. You know, we wow, had some big pros. Yeah, it was like yeah. a rip curl, rustic, whatever thing. And um, it was a piece of crap boat. And uh, <laughs> somebody saving some money. Yeah, they're. It's you know they're like, oh well, we don't like it to look like all modern. You know, we like our little rustic vibe. And it's like, how about a boat that runs? Yeah. Dude, Mick almost quit Rip Curl after that trip. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. He's been attacked by. By the way, he got he got a, attacked by a great white shark. Yes. At, at, he was uh, the one who was attacked by a great white Punched shark. Back. Yeah, yeah. Like, and this doesn't even register into his top twenty stories. <laughs> oh my god, Mick Manning, You know what I mean? That's legend. Like, yeah, he's 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 hilarious. You know, he actually I heard him because on one of these interviews, they're like, "What was the worst trip of your life?" He goes, "Oh, easy." <laughs> he calls this one out. Yeah, he said totally. the rustic Rip Curl trip. He goes, yeah, he goes, "Oh, it was this trip." We were in Papua New Guinea. It was like, you know, and he goes, you know, those guys just wanted to sit there and get hammered, you know, yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty classic. Yeah. Oh, we got some it's neighbors little, doing some gardening over here. Banging on, banging on drums over there. Um, That's hilarious. But yeah, it was, it, it was an experience. Anyway, we, I, I shine the spotlight for these guys and I think I took, chain, uh, took, uh, Switched off with, I think it was Ted Groenpo or Jason Childs or one of those guys, the photographers. But we ended up finally dropping anchor at about four in the morning in some little cove, and we were stranded for two days before oh, wow. we got out of there. You Thank know, God these you little guys do. came up in these little canoes. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and it's like classic, yeah, yeah, classic village. And they're like, and then they go back, and then they come back with these guys with full-on just submachine guns. Like, Whoa. who are you? And that's when we were like, oh, this is kind of tense, you know. And, was uh, that because it was Papua, or was it? Yeah, yeah, because it was pa- we were in Papua, oh, and Papua. Uh, and so it was just it was just a it was it was a trippy little deal. I have some in, I have some just photos of us sitting there like fishing off the shore when we were stranded and stuff. Uh, but yeah, it was a it was a nightmare, one yeah. of those little nightmare trips. But you laugh about it now. Well, it's, it becomes one of the most memorable trips. Yeah, right? those are the ones. I mean, adventure, right? That it it's not an adventure until something goes wrong. Until something breaks, yeah. right? Like that. That's the thing. No, for sure. I, we we talk about that a lot in this podcast. Ask people, you know, do you learn more from your successes or your failures? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's like when you're successful, 
gosh, you, you think like I can do no wrong, right? And and that's just the glutton for, you know, you're going to get so humbled. Yeah, if there's you a lot think of hubris in success, which right? Is not good, right? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. So, so after Surfer, you were at Surfer for ten years, which is a long time for an editor. That was a well. It was like I mean, I kind of went through the ranks. So I started. Steve Hawk was still there. So I started like the number three guy, then I went to the number two guy. I was a number two guy for a good four years, and then finally I was the editor for like five, right, four right. or five. And so, um, but all told, it was ten. Yeah, and then I and then I kind of went off and and did the ended up with the thing with Grind TV. Be- between those, though, it's kind of interesting because now, especially now, um, in two thousand nine, I, I did I did a little stint with Tom Lochtefeld, who does all the wave pool stuff and oh, yeah. the flow rider thing, and I. I did a, you know, you've been to China a bunch. Yeah. I did a whirlwind tour of China with him in Setting 2009. Or just t- taking it around? No, well, it was, um, he was really pitching the surf pools. That this, you know, he's, I think he's doing that one out in Palm Springs. That's the, okay, that's with, their yeah. technology. He with, was pitching that 10 years ago. Oh, wow. You know, and um, the Chinese at the time were very into like, hey, we want to, we want to create wave pools and that Hangzhou province um, area, I yeah. forget what the, we met with sort of the governor of that area first, and then he set up meetings with the mayors of like six or seven of those towns in his region. Oh, wow. And every one of them was like this giant round table, you know, those. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those big, big lazy Susan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Totally. It literally is a table yeah. that spins. With or has the whole a, yeah. city council thing, and it was like we did the whole dog and pony show, and then they would go and take us to where they were like, hey, this is where we want to put this pool. You know, wow. and they would be showing us this, you know, giant drawing. We'd be standing on some bridge looking at some giant town, and they're like, "Look, this is what we're gonna do. This is where we're gonna put the pool." And we're like, "Well, what about all those people that are right there? Like those buildings? Don't worry about that. We're just gonna knock it down." Yeah, yeah, we'll move them. <laughs> yeah, it's China. We can do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's there's your efficient government, by the way. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I give I give China that. Uh, just they, like okay, <laughs> not, not so say? much liberty, but yeah. they have really a lot of efficiency. Oh in government. my god, man, that was a that was an eye opener for sure. So, Super fun though. Yeah, no, China's an interesting place. That's uh, how I, often do you go there? I used to go there quite a bit. Like probably, I mean, I did tours that were you know over twenty cities. I've done. I used to go there a lot. Was um, it work related or was it? Yeah, it was. It was always work related. Okay. Um, became our second biggest market for excess. So, yeah. um, you know, we did a lot of club events and parties. I actually did wave, or not wave, but I did. Um, I did some standing wave events in Malaysia and China. The Flowrider t- yeah. Tech. The and flo- then we, yeah. The Singapore one. Did you go to the Singapore? Flo- I right? didn't go to the Singapore one, um, but I did go to. I went to one in Kuala Lumpur, and I think I went to one in. Hangzhou or somewhere in that zone. It, that's like the sort of the Hawaii of, yeah. of China down by Guangzhou. For um, sure. But uh, south of Shanghai. But yeah, no, I, I've, yeah, it's a, it's a curious place. Um, I, I went all over. I went from, you know, from the normal spots, you know, Guangzhou, Shanghai, Beijing, yeah. but went up to Dalian and Hohat and Urumuchi, which is kind of the north, the north, uh, west and northeast corners. Yeah. Well, someone's really banging on their... I know. Their thing over there. Um, I can't even th- see that guy. Where is yeah, he? Yeah, I don't even know where he is. <laughs> it's like a bang on drum. And then, uh, and then, um, yeah, I, I went down south in Kunming and all over. I tried to get to Tibet, which I 
Did you go? No, it's very hard for foreigners to get into Tibet. Yeah. Oh man, that would be so. That would have been cool. We were talking about it, and then never really got there. But um, yeah, no, it's uh, it's an amazing country and. Um, so did you guys end up building some wave pools there? No, I mean that was <laughs> that was the thing, man. When you get into the nitty gritty with 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 technology and the Chinese, and it was like, okay, we have to have that. Tom was just like, this isn't good, you know. Like the terms just were not not favorable, not favorable, you know. And and he's very, you know, I mean, Tom's a very litigation sort of heavy type of guy, anyway. He's, yeah. Very, he he's a I mean he writes his patents and everything himself and he he knows his shit and um, uh, but yeah I think at the end of the day he felt like these guys were trying to pull the wool over his eyes and, and take him and he's just like well nope. if, if there's any you know if history's a record they were gonna steal your technology and build yeah. their own wave pools have um, you seen that they have like a Slater wave pool over there yeah like, I haven't, I haven't a, been to it it's almost like a, I mean I just saw the video it was like a mirror reflection of it it was like the train the whole deal it's like wow they will figure it out and they will they will make it um, yeah no that's uh, you gotta be careful in China with IP right but uh, and what'd you do after that and that's when uh, and then the, the then I met the grind guys you know because okay. what was happening was Tom had all these projects and we, we used to look at the whiteboard and this was in the middle of the crash and we, there was 10 projects 08. he had in, oh, yeah, 08, 09. 08, 09, wow. And it was like, you know, we'd go in the whiteboard every week, and it's like, okay, Mallorca. Um, and then there was like, you know, uh, so a big Israel. Yeah. There was just like this huge pipeline of projects. And, and every week they were coming in, and they were just falling off. Like, oh. <laughs> they were turning into white spaces. <laughs> <on that. laughs> white spaces. And Tom came back from, I think it was uh, Abu Dhabi or one of those things. One of those places, he goes, Chris, he goes, you don't understand. He goes, people are just abandoning their cars at the airport. You know, this was wow. the height of the whole thing. Oh, when Dubai crashed. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, Dubai, yeah, 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 it was yeah. Dubai. And he was just but like. But Abu Dhabi built one, I think. Yeah, yeah, and he's just like, it's, it's, he goes, it's, he goes, this shit is getting heavy, you yeah, know? Yeah, and yeah. that was right when stuff was melting down. And so, um, you know, when a bunch of those things started going sideways, um, and I met these grind guys, and they're like, hey, we really need some help. Like, you know, um, I kind of was just like, hey, Tom, I think I'm going to go jump over here. <laughs> you know? Shift gears. <laughs> I think I'm going to shift back yeah. into my media thing because this seems to be uh, not a good time to be to doing this thing. Grind TV was uh, skate, surf, was basically snow, Yeah, it was all right? the... Yeah. Uh, or was it? Or, I, yeah. uh, it was, you know, they called it action sports. And yeah. my, my, my sort of big edict with those guys and like look action sports is a term that was invented by ESPN for the X Games right. nobody no action sports guy calls no it an action, action sports yeah. I go we're going to call this adventure sports you know? oh that's great just so it's a little bit more latitude and outdoorsy and even just by making that little tweak uh, we we were so much more successful on the advertising front so, um, so and, and what what happened Where's Grind TV today? What, what happened there? They're, now they're called the Enthusiast Network, so they still exist. But what happened was, um, you know, we did, um, I went to work for those guys, and it was, it was sort of one of these things where um, we, we got our legs under us with Yahoo Sports. So the biggest thing was like oh, wow. Yahoo Back Sports. Back to your connection. Did you yeah. make that connection? Well, so they 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 sold their previous company to Yahoo, so they had okay. a Yahoo connection, and their Yahoo connection is now today he's the head of ESPN, Jimmy Pitaro. Oh wow! Yeah, he's like the guy. And um, anyway, Jimmy was kind of our guy, 
and Jimmy got us in with Yahoo Sports, and and he's just like, hey, these guys know what they're doing in this world, and the sports guys at Yahoo Sports were very stick and ball, like, yeah, yeah. They're, they're traditional sports guys, Normal, yeah. and so what happened was when uh, 2000 Olymp- 2010 Olympics came around in Vancouver, um, they hit us up, and they're like, hey, snowboarding is going to be massive deal, right. you know, we really love it, because you know that's not our that's not our wheelhouse. Right? Can you guys lead the charge on the snowboard coverage for for Yahoo Sports? And so, it just so happened that Olympics ended up a lot of these fun sort of stories that went viral came out of the snowboard space. Right, 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 right. And sort of we went on them like so we and we were the ones who kind of got all those stories, and they went front page. And when they go front page as support as a you know it's one thing to get on the front page of sports back then it would, it would get but decent traffic. The but front it, page, front but it, page. But it got on the front page, front page. You know that was massive, and yeah. so we kind of proved our medal, you know, with uh, with them. And um, you know, fast forward two years later. Actually, three years later, we were 25% of Yahoo Sports traffic, and it was largely because I was covering all these adventure sports things and pitching directly to the front page, not the sports page. It's, it's more features content than exactly. true sports, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a big story. And so it was just it was a lot of human interest stuff, more a lot of my, my big wave towing stuff, all that well, kind of... Drive social. Right. I mean, it's the yeah. stuff that younger people yeah. want to look at and yeah. talk about. And so... It was a really, it was a really, really fun time. You know, it was like, I mean, for a little while, um, we were just surviving. You know, uh, doing what we had to. Even our own company, we had side hustles to survive. Yeah. So our engineering team, our guys who developed the site, um, one of their projects was. Uh, if you watch the Super Bowl a lot during those years, they used to have the Doritos crash the Super Bowl um, uh, camp ad campaign. And the, what that was, was it was a user-generated thing where Doritos had a, like a million-dollar prize. You made a Doritos commercial. Um, you put your commercial on this platform. It was kind of like a that we ran. It yeah. was our platform. Um, and if you made it into the finals, if you were one of the top four as far as vo- as far as like uh, votes, yeah. you'd get your your commercial would air during the Super Bowl. So Doritos would always have four commercials during the Super Bowl. Oh my gosh! And they were these kind of funny user generated ones, you know, that people made themselves. And uh, and if you happen to win the big ad network one at the end of the Super Bowl, like so, that they, you know, when they they do this was the most successful ad. If you won that. Like beat everybody else out, not just the Doritos ones, but beat everybody. You'd win a million dollars. Whoa! And best money times, Doritos could spend. Right? Two times, Dorito guys won it. Oh my gosh! You know what I mean? And so that was a huge actual. Um, and you that guys was were a ca- that, that was a huge campaign. revenue stream for us. Yeah. yeah no, yeah. no, no. This was like this. I had nothing to do with that. Okay. But it was one of our side hustles in the sense that. Um, it kept us kind of afloat during the lean years, you know, like that project, because we got paid a decent chunk of money to kind of put that thing together. Because you put the, it together. On yeah. the tech side. Wow. And the guy, um, the team I had, we were really, really, really small. And, you know, we worked our asses off in there going night and day. And, and, and when you get on the Yahoo front page, you're talking about a fire hose of traffic back then. And so if any little thing went wrong, um, you know, the, the hammer would come down. Yeah. You know, if your site didn't load right away, you know, or anything like that, and so you had to have a really bulletproof site yeah. um, from a strategic standpoint. It couldn't be hacked. All this kind of stuff. So these are the things that would keep us up at night. And you know, when it's we 
first started getting those homepage hits, we, it was always like this big deal, and we were like, "Holy sh!" Just you'd how were you managing the traffic? Did you use like? Did you were using cloud-based serving or? Uh, it wasn't back then. It was mainly um, there's I can't remember even what the dashboard was quick, called. Right? Um, but you know, at the time, everybody was looking at uh, Quantcast was the um, the one that ranked everybody. Okay. And so that was the one where you that was the one all the big advertisers were looking at to see how much traffic you were getting. I have a screenshot actually on my computer of like you know we were we were ranked we were the 49th. Grind TV was the 49th most trafficked website in the United States, Holy and we're right above New York Times. Oh my god! In 2013. That's amazing. That's how much traffic we had. And. Does Grind TV still exist today? They're now called the. Uh, they're now called the. Uh, when we sold to Surfer Magazine, so what happened was uh-huh. we went back and sold, and we changed the whole group to the Adventure Sports Network. Okay. And then they changed Grind TV into the Adventure the Adventure Sports Network site or something like that. I can't right, remember. Right, right. But, um, remember that so it's around but it's a shell of itself because and actually I don't know if it's around anymore because when Surfer went down I think it went with it probably went with it yeah I've, I've been talking to uh, Mike Carter and Don Meek about the Fuel TV yeah. uh, reload which I know is I've been talking to those guys too yeah coming out now and at, what's your take I think it's exciting. I mean, obviously, Fuel TV kind of went through a similar, you know, right. they were Fox, they were affiliated with Fox Sports for a while, and, right. and had a life. I, I invited Pat Parnell to come co-host today. Oh, with Pat's the, awesome! Man. I don't know where he is. Probably yeah. had a big night last night. But the, uh, <laughs> if I know Pat, but the, uh, um, but the, yeah, I think the. Um, Pat went to Russia for me for Grind TV. Oh, did he? Yeah, because when for, the for, Russian Olympics came, yeah, I'm yeah. like, hey, Pat. And he Sochi? went for three weeks, dude, for Sochi. Oh, yeah, dude. yeah. yeah I've, we've talked, we've traded stories about Sochi. I've had some <laughs> wild, uh, wild experiences in Sochi. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's oh, a fun place. I've yeah. never been there. I'm like, dude, this is all you. I'm married. I got little kids. You're on it. Oh, it's, it's nuts. There's a, <laughs> they have this special drink they have that, still, you know, everybody drinks vodka in, in Russia, but. In Sochi, they drink this stuff called cha-cha-cha, uh, something uh-huh. like that. And it comes in like a big, nice-looking, almost wine-looking bottle. Yeah. And these people that were hosting me, and it tastes great. They're ser- much better than just drinking straight vodka or something. <laughs> yeah. Because nobody drinks cocktails in Russia. They just drink vodka. It's all, right? yeah. That's so, funny. like, they're serving me this stuff, and I'm like, oh, this is pretty good. And I think... You know, we were eating and drinking and talking a lot, and they kept serving me. And I had to go on and do this party afterwards. So I'd be, you know, I did kind of act together. Yeah. And I was like, going, I didn't notice it leaving dinner, but going into the event, I started to notice that I was really, you know, not sober. Oh, and, uh, <laughs> and it turned out to be a great party, but there's a hilarious <laughs> video of me on stage where somebody handed me a GoPro on a stick to like film from the stage with a DJ. Right. And I took it and just licked it and threw it into the crowd. Oh it was uh, it's quite a festive night. <laughs> Ended, ended a little ugly, but no, not really. It was, it was fun. We had a good time, but it was. Uh, That's classic. Uh, there's some unintended consequences there. But yeah. No, fun, fun night. But um, so yeah, no, I'm, I'm actually bullish on Fuel TVs relaunch. They have a good partnership with Samsung mm-hmm. to get on all the Samsung TVs there. Right. I think they're doing it right. They're keeping their overheads super low. Yeah. They're getting a lot of content, shared content from right. other partners, kind of non-exclusive. And I think what uh, you know, I don't. I'm not directing their business or doing right. their strategy, but I, I sense that they'll probably start to pick up more budget. And you know, as they create more traffic, they're yeah. going to pick up more more budget. And uh, 
and I think there's some interest. Glenn Rogers, who's who I mentioned before, he and yeah. I are working on a kind of a bigger idea that may include fuel. Nice, um, but I, you know, I mean, Don Don was my boss for a long time, and he ran our group at Surfer. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so, um, and you know, he's one of those guys who, what. When we used to go into these meetings, whether it be like, I don't know, any kind of pitch deck meeting or something like this where you're either selling a brand or you're trying to do some merger acquisition thing or whatever, he he was fantastic in, in the way he, you know, could frame up what the opportunity was, show you where, you know, where we were, this is where we need to get. Yeah. And really kind of motivate the team and everything like that. And so I really enjoyed, you know, working for him. He was just, he's like me. He's kind of an opinionated guy and whatever. Yeah. But he was like, he got shit done, you yeah. know. And um, but he's a, to your point, he's a clear thinker. And he's a fairly easy guy to work with. I mean, he's yeah, very, con- yeah. very congenial. He's just, it's just one of these things where he's, hey, we got to do this. Let's go. And I think where, I, to your point, I think what they're doing right is like, they're under no sort of like impression that they're going to be, raking in a bunch of production dollars it's like no we're going to keep this humble and sustainable and just going to be and build it step growth, by step just step yeah. by step and I mean that's how you have to do things now you yeah. can't you know what I mean like this isn't the dot com era I've been yeah. part of so many companies where you know they think like oh well we have this big budget this means we're going to be successful that doesn't mean crap well yeah you it know? means you can have a huge failure yeah, yeah it just yeah. means a big giant failure exactly <laughs> yeah. and um, and so I think he's I think they've got the right approach and I hope you know I hope I hope it works. It's funny you say that. I saw on my phone today. I just saw a big promo come through on fuel on my in my feed. And Do you have the fuel app? I haven't got the app yet. Well, do we'll I? have to get you the app. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not. I don't work for fuel. I'm just friends yeah. with some of the guys, and so I've no. I know, the app and, and, and I'm, I'm and Carter sure. and all those guys, and yeah. and um, you know, it, there's a need. I think. I mean, at the end of the day, though, any kind of content game is just a tough game. You know, it's like. Yeah, it's just a. It's well, and to getting to scale, I think back to the yeah. Yahoo days. You know the, um, you know it used to be you were con- when, when I was doing dot coms in the late nineties. It was either your content or you were conduit. You would say so. You're either building pipeline or you're you're right. making content to go in the pipeline. Yeah. And these days, you look at like even Roku, which is big conduit now has its own channel. Right. You know Amazon has its own content. A lot of these. Yeah. They all start it, out with their own. It, yeah, it's kind of going together. Um, but to your, it, but it has to be sustainable. You can't. There is no magic money out there anymore. The 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 phrase that um, well, Don one Don's partners, Ira Opper, oh, yeah. uh, told me a long time ago. He goes, you know, everybody says content is king, and yeah, they're right. But distribution is God. <laughs> <laughs> and he's right. And and you know, and it was funny. I was actually thinking about writing a book called Distribution is God because it's really- like. No, I, I totally believe that. And that's how we built our excess business. Yeah. We focus on distribution. Yeah. Um, no, and I think, you know, you have to have both, right? God right. without a king can't execute very well. Yeah. And a king without a god is, just, is lost. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's just like a distribution channel full of shit. It's just shit. <laughs> yeah, right, you know right. What I mean? and, and, it can be big, but it won't, yeah. won't, won't that much. Yeah. yeah. And that's what Yahoo became, right? right. So it's like, um, and that's sort of what social feeds unrestrained are, are, are becoming, you know? And, um, well, that's the complaint about Facebook right now. Right, is that's that the big complaint. Wants to be on it's it like, it's, you know, it was great little place when I got here, but now this neighborhood's destroyed, right? And, and that's, the, yeah. that's the evolution of all these platforms, right? And, and yeah, you could still hyper-curate your stuff and make it kind of interesting, but you're still getting nailed with all these ads and everything. And so, you know, we're living in this weird time where it's like these guys are sort of the, whatever you want to call them, the robber barons of the media industry. And 
And um, but how sustain? They look like oh my god, how do we ever get rid of them? Um, but at at some point, the thing's going to get so displeasing, and so many people are yeah. going to get turned off that 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 new things are going to open up. And I do think there there is going to be an it, it, the media landscape in ten years is going to be really interesting. Fundamentally, yeah, fundamentally different. Right. I had lunch yesterday with Sophie Goldschmidt, who oh, uh, ran the WSL yeah. briefly. Yeah. And um, really brilliant woman. Uh, great conversation. She has a big history in in league. She type was in sports. like the NBA in Europe or something, yeah, right? Tennis yeah, tennis and NBA. Oh yeah, ten, yeah. She was a tennis player. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, yep. She worked for, and she worked for Adidas in tennis. Um, so yeah, really fascinating woman. Bright, really bright. And uh, we were talking about kind of. You know, I said with excess, we had stayed out of uh, out of competitive sports mainly just because we didn't have the money. Right, um, it's and expensive. Red yeah. Bull and Monster fighting it out, spending way more money than they should. For sure. Um, and so we were like, well, we got to find somewhere else. We have a, need a flanking strategy. We yeah. did that with distribution. We did that with how we, you know, try to express our content. And I told her, I said, you know, back then what we kind of focused on was more of the the um, free ride lifestyle type stories yep. that were underserved but had broader reach for the audience we were trying to, you know, because yeah. we didn't have a lot of people who wanted to know who was winning the world championship. Wow. We had people who wanted to see... There aren't that many people. Here's breaking news. <laughs> <laughs> <There aren't laughs> but that was kind of where the core of the sport was, right, right for a long time. Right. And, um, and so, I, but I said to her, I said, you know, I think where this is kind of, and I'm a little biased on it, but where I think it's kind of headed, if you look at like the stuff that Pat does with outside TV or yeah. like where fuel TV is sort of headed, you know, it, it was kind of the porn of the sport where it was like image caption, nobody read the content. Right. And I think where it's headed, um, or at least some seg- section of it's headed, you know, I like, I'm invested in Rourke. I like what they do. They have big brand stories. Mm-hmm. I like the, you know, we're almost, it's almost getting back to, um, more like the National Geographic, where you're you're seeing the adventure, but you're learning the history, and you're really mm-hmm. getting into the depth of it. Because I think that's that's what captures people's imaginations, and that's where you get like um, there's this uh, it's all these great documentaries coming up, but there's yeah. one called The Road Up, The Long Road Up, I think it's called. It's Ewan McGregor, and they're they're taking motorcycles from you know Patagonia up to North America, yeah. and they're doing electric bikes and Rivians yeah. and you know Apple's involved. That's so and cool. It's not because and Harley has his electric bikes they're riding. Cool. So it's all electric, and the story is about you know how they're making these electric machines work, trying to make it the whole way up this, this right. long and, and and kind of desolate. Where coast. are they plugging in? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and and I think what's interesting we were talking about that, and I said you know I think what's interesting is that story mm-hmm. is going to embed Harley's electric bikes and Rivian's trucks and Apple's technology in your brain as a consumer mm-hmm. much deeper because oh, the story is so much more powerful it is, than yeah. watching a caption and seeing a seeing a brand on somebody's board. Well, you know it's 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 so crazy because I was having this conversation and I can't remember with who but it's like we're so flooded with information and people are 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 like oh well you know, a lot of younger people today, they're like, well, we have access to so much information. We're so much smarter today than you guys were because we have all this information at our fingertips. And I'm like, well, yeah, but it's not contextualized. Right. You know what I mean? Like, like it's just data. And if it's not, if it's not contextualized, if you don't know how to basically separate the good information from the bad information, it's just shit, you know? And, and so like the QAnon problem. Right. Yeah. It's so, it's just like, we're swimming in, in all kinds of shit everywhere. And, and, and um, and so, how do you yeah. vet all this information? How do you vet it all? But more importantly, 
you know, people take something and they try to dumb it down to it's either you're this way or that way. A binary choice. Yeah. Right. And it's like, I'm a much Morist. I'm, yeah. a, I'm, a, I'm a, hey, there's 180 ways to look at this issue. Right. Right. I'm on the same page. And yeah. it's like, I, I'm not a single issue voter. You right. know, I, I'd, I'd like to say I am. There's issues that matter maybe more to me than others. But you pull on one string and, you know, they all, they're all, they're yeah, all yeah. connected, man. Yeah, and so yeah. it's like you just got to be um, – that's one of the things that, that the longer form storytelling and documentary and podcasts, frankly. I mean, podcasts, I think, are doing a better job of going deep into issues than any – news outlet ever has you know Absolutely. it's longer than a radio show it's longer than any little 60 minute segment it's longer than anything like that and so i think this type of um medium is is probably the most exciting um place and the most encouraging place in media well then i think a lot of people feel it's more authentic right yeah. because it's i mean this is an unedited podcast right. this is going to go up the way we had the conversation and it goes just back to like where i said like if you were if you, you know, you take somebody that you think you despise, right, and you listen to them for an hour and then just go, well, gosh, should I believe everything these guys are telling me about this guy or maybe should I take them as word for it, right? Yeah, listen, to, like, listen to them. You have mouth. to listen to the other side. If you're not willing to listen to the other side, you're the problem. And I'm a huge free speech guy. It can't all be, it can't all be bad. No right. one's all bad. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I, I just think, you know, the things that are dangerous to me are the ones where people were like, well, uh, that person shouldn't even, you shouldn't even interview anybody like that. Like that, that's just it's like getting to cancel culture. Yeah, yeah. The cancel culture thing is to me is the most toxic, uh, thing going. Our, our older son went to Kenyon college. It's a, my opinion, one of the better liberal arts colleges in America and Ohio, old school yeah. around like the second oldest, oldest college in Ohio built by two Lords. That's how right. old it is. It looks like Hogwarts kind of, it's a really interesting place. But when, cancel culture started really creeping into the university setting, um, they were really early to say, we will not tolerate that here. Did they do, and have they stuck to their Yeah, guns? No, they totally have. Because, and they said, look, you know, this is a, this is a liberal arts college. This right. is about talking about ideas you might not be comfortable with. That's the whole point. And, and, and maintaining, you know, right. r respectful, healthy conversations, particularly and, when you disagree. And if you, if you look back, like, at the 60s, and that was like their whole mantra on the left was like, "Don't tell me what I can yeah. and can't Don't say." Don't cancel. <laughs> it's like, it's how did like that, how did, to how see did that it? it's completely yeah. come the opposite way, and they're the ones who are you know censoring and all this shit. It's, it's like, Animal Farm. Yeah, it's like, oh my god, man, what the hell's gone on here? You become the thing that yeah. you didn't want. Yeah, and so you look at our problems. You go, are, are these problems or symptoms of problems? That, so well, you know, to me, it comes down to certainty. There's a really good podcast called Philosophize This, and. Um, you know, this is something I've thought about for a long time. And he just, um, what's his name? Stephen West uh, articulates it better than I did. But he, you know, he said, look, you know, during pre, you know, if, if you go pre-enlightenment, every all the, all philosophy was based on this idea of, of a god mm -hmm. that was the origin of truth, and then how it emanated into our lives that we experienced. And with the enlightenment, there was this big revolution where science. Yeah. now became the center of everything, you know. And science has done a lot of amazing things. It's right. given us all this, you know, this, yeah. these comforts that we can live like pharaohs. Yeah. Um, but he said, you know, really, the issue wasn't the certainty of God or the certainty of science. The problem was certainty. Right. You know, when, when you have certainty, when, when, when and you end up in these self-righteous positions yeah. where you, you, you don't see... And people who are 
in the middle of cancel, you know, driving cancel culture don't see it the way we see, we're talking about it, right. right? Because their bias doesn't allow them to, because right. their certainty is so strong. Right. I've learned to, I try so hard now, I'm older, maybe hopefully slightly wiser, but I try to say all the time, like, I could I could be completely wrong about this and mean it. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. I, I always it's funny because I went about a year ago I started going down just the Jordan Peterson uh, oh, yeah. uh, uh, rabbit hole you yeah. know and and you know one of his biggest tell us about points, that well, yeah, can you tell us what that is well I mean he's you know he came to fame it was kind of interesting because he he's this uh, uh, psychologist some from from Canada and he was a professor for years and and they had that there was the reason he got famous is because cancel culture came after him okay and it was because they passed a law in canada that said if you don't you know if you don't address somebody by their preferred gender pronoun or something you can be basically it's against the law and he was like his problem was like hey you can't control language you know i mean like this is this is a slippery slope yeah Yeah. and he was like i'm not and it's like (laughs) francis tried this for 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 hundreds of years it doesn't always work right and so you know he was just pointing to what the road that leads down right right and all of a sudden he became like this giant lightning rod controversial character and then but when you opened up the 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 stuff and you learned about who he was and 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 uh he wrote this book called Maps of Meaning, which I haven't got through. It's it's crazy um, complex and it's all and about how language kind of uh, it's just is created it's, and develops. It's everything from spirituality to just hierarchies to everything about how how humans function. But then his big bestseller was a couple of years ago. It was Twelve Rules for Life. Okay, right? This is simplified. Yeah, very simplified one. He's he's got a, he's coming out with a new one called Twelve More. Here's the top three. <laughs> but he he's been doing this um, this speaking sort of round the world tour with with Dave Rubin. Who um, you know Rubin was a guy who was on the left. He was on MSNBC. He was one of those Young Turk guys. Yeah. And uh, he he's married to another man who lives in L.A. and the whole thing. And, and he's he's like, I basically got canceled, you know. And he's sort of a little bit more right of center now. And he's he, he why did Ruben get canceled? I forget. Yeah. I mean, he, I think because he started questioning those, yeah, yeah, you know yeah, his yeah, own yeah, tribe, yeah. and and yeah, yeah. you know they just said you're done. Um, but he took Jordan around on this global speaking tour, and Jordan does. He's really. Um, pretty fantastic uh, speeches about all kinds of things. He has a whole biblical series that he did. Oh, wow. That guy's right into it. I mean, it was crazy. He's like, <laughs> I was listening to a couple of them, and uh, and it was like the first one, it was like three hours on like the first line of the Bible. He goes, and he gets like three hours into the podcast. He's like, okay, so this might take a little longer than I thought to get through this. <laughs> <laughs> You start to realize what's going on in his head, right? Yeah, he's just got so head, much to share. I mean, it, you just watch how his brain clicks. Yeah. And you would love it. You, yeah, yeah, I yeah. don't know if you've listened to any of his stuff, but I think he would really, really love it. And then, you know, he went, uh, another huge fan podcast I love is Econ Talk with Russ Roberts. Oh, I, gotta, I, gotta, I haven't uh, heard that. So uh, that's like part of Stanford University, you know, whatever. And, and, and he's one of these guys who... He's very much kind of a Hayekian. Oh, yeah. But he interviews people. Austrian economics, yeah, free market economics. but he's very, um, uh, he's, he's super civil, and he brings on people from all 
parts of the spectrum, usually people who maybe they disagree, but they have these the most incredible discussions about how to solve things. And what's things. that called again? Econ Talk. Econ Talk. Yeah. Yeah. Good. yeah, that's a great one. And you go on their website, he's got like, I think he's maybe 600 episodes in. Wow. Every episode is um, transcribed. It's on their website. Wow. It's all part of, it's part of the Hoover Foundation. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask if he was at the Hoover yeah. Institute because they, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's Hoover a very Institute. free market organization. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And at so, Stanford, yeah. Fascinating, fascinating conversations. Every 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 sort of piece of society you could want to think about, you can go research that. And I always steer people to those places because it's like, hey, you want intelligent conversation, intelligent debate, right? Um, where they challenge each other in a very polite, civil way, and and, and they laugh. Dedicated he, to liberty. Devi- yeah. And they're and they're they're not afraid of ideas. But he brings they on full on Marxists on the yeah, show, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all the time. And so, you know, and and. And, um, you know, I listened to him through the years and, you know, he's worried right now, like yeah. you, you, like how his attitude changes and stuff. And so those kinds of guys um, I'm fascinated by um, anywhere where you're getting left and right, s- sitting down at the same table, trying to figure things out, you know. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you and I were laughing the other day, but it's like there's those... I heard an interview with the guys from Palantir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was a Dave Rubin one with one of the guys who's from Palantir. And it was sort of like... Because they just went public, right? Yeah, and we were talking about how I considered buying a big block of their stock in the IPO, and then I backed that way because I didn't feel comfortable with what was going on. But uh, they do a really good sort of um, breakdown of what it is they do. You know, it's like, who are you guys? What do you do? Right. Why, is, why are you the talk of the town? Which and, is basically data analytics at a, at a yeah, m- in mass, super, meta scale. Yeah. Super in-depth. And, you know, what's interesting is because their security is super, super tight where it's like, hey, look, you know, our systems and the reason that government is starting to use us more is because if you want access to this file, there's a fingerprint that says you got access to this file, right. all this kind of stuff. It's very, you know, all this... If, if you want something, there's a record that we saw it, and right. you, and we know who you are, right? right? And right. Sort of things, but it's also so you have these secret little areas. But if one department and one agency needs to communicate with another agency, they set up the infrastructure so they could do it to where like the allowable stuff is is, sure. is visible, so they can make that seamless. Because and most of these agencies have their own proprietary backends that don't communicate with, diff- with anything else. They're all on different yeah. platforms. Right. They were built in different decades, and yeah. it's like you know one on like 1992 platform, another one's on. 2004 and yeah. yeah it's like how do we get the shit how do we share this information yeah so they're doing a really good job i think of um of of cleaning things up and he this guy who he interviews dave rubin interviews him i can't remember his was name it the ceo uh no it wasn't the ceo was it peter Thiel? no it wasn't peter it was actually i'll find it for you um that's okay yeah we can look it up but you yeah. can look it up he um he just talks about how look if if you and I want the same thing. We're a small L, right? We want yeah. efficiency. Right. You know what I mean? We want efficiency out of our, our, our government agencies. As long as it's not China. Right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and, and, and just more potency. It's like, hey, you know, you, hopefully you start an agency or something to either remedy a problem or fix a problem. And in a, in a cool thing, it would be nice if certain ones could go away after a while. But um, it, at least serve a nice function, you know, not be a, a burden. And... Um, Anyway, he he gets really into it, and when you talk about you pair a guy like that with 
married like an Aaron James yeah. and his economic sort of theories on what he wants to do with the Fed Reserve. Yeah, right? a, direct, a direct account access direct to account the public kind of the thing. Federal Reserve. And, and at first that really scared me, but when I looked a little deeper in your podcast and I was listening to it, I'm like, okay, so he's not talking about closing all private banks and all that no, kind no. of stuff. Yeah. You know, that starts getting really interesting. And you're like, okay, well... And you by know, the way, he's not those... a random guy thinking about this. He, you know, he studied this at Harvard totally. in his, in his yeah, philosophy. No. Yeah, he's not just some guy program. who pulled off the lineup at Brook Street like this. No, no, yeah, <laughs> and he's working on it. He co-authored that with a famous monetarist. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So, and that stuff fascinates me. But it's like, you know, I would love to get those two guys in a room with a guy like Andrew Yang, right. who, you know, who, who was probably, in my opinion, like one of the more intelligent people running for president in right. this cycle, right? Absolutely. Where you could actually have a t- sit-down conversation with him, and it was really about policy, about right. how to solve shit. He was a policy wonk. He yeah. was a policy wonk. And so... Unfortunately, it doesn't sell well on television. No, none of that. Yeah. that that's the problem, you know? Um, but it would be fascinating. You're a guy who could pull that off, dude. Well, you, so, you know, the, the funny thing is um, we have a little... Uh, we, I, there's a group that I'm a part of here in Laguna with Harley Ruda and some other uh-huh. guys who like to think and talk about this stuff. Uh, Harley, I love, I actually appreciate Harley a lot. I think yeah. he's a he's a great. Uh, he's part of the Lincoln movement, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. And, but he's also a Democrat. But I think he was raised Republican. <laughs> so he's got. See, those guys hate Jared Kushner. <laughs> oh, well, well but in, and no, I'm not like yeah. I'm not trying to be some cheerleader pom pom guy, but just to, we haven't talked say. about Jared per se. But the but the. Um, but you know, but but I think we have we and we have a broad selection of people. Who, right. Some people have voted for Trump. Some are yeah, yeah. Bernie Sanders fans. I mean, you know, right. wide selection of, of folks, and we have very. Uh, I think you have to, otherwise, there's no value. Yeah, we're just talking. We're yeah. talking to ourselves. Yeah. So it's 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 always interesting conversations. But one of the things that I had proposed, and I was just trying to figure out how to do it, which I think I can do it on this deck now, was having Aaron come and and host a salon where we he has a new book yeah. um, called Money from Nothing, where we talk about one. You know, understanding exactly how the Fed and the Treasury actually work, right. which most in monetary policy works, which a lot yeah. of people don't, and yeah. most people fall asleep if I start talking about it. But it's kind of more important than, than ever. Ever, it's it's more important than anything. And I, it, one of the most uh, one of the most compelling books I ever read was after during the last crash. I was I read this one called The Bankers That Broke the World. Right. And it was all about the early Fed Reserve chairman of the of the, you know, twenties and thirties and how they all knew each other. This was sort of post World War One, yeah. pre World War Two. Milton Friedman was working at the and Fed then. All yeah. all that stuff that was going on at that period. And um, it'd be fascinating to get Aaron's take on on that stuff. There's some pretty cool it's been so long I can't remember what it was. But you know We've advanced so much, and a lot oh. of the knowledge that they had then was so they they were just throwing shit at the wall. Well, and you had, I mean, Aaron talks about this, but you know, the Wizard of Oz is all about monetary policy. Mm-hmm. It's and Williams Jennings Bryan was running for president then. He was running about his whole concept was adding silver to our monetary supplies as the foundation. You know, everything's right. based on gold, but gold's yeah. gold, there's only so much gold, which means you only have so much money, which means money right. you, you can impoverish a nation just yeah. limiting the money supply. Um, and so he he talks a lot about those those kinds of things, but uh, I, I think yeah the fiat currency and the digital currency and the and the other stuff that I'm fascinated is like the M1, M2, M3, M4, like all the different levels of yeah you know that, that all that stuff. Well, Bitcoin now has become basically adopted by you know, it's a federal currency almost, and in a lot of countries, right? Well, and here it's 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 you can banks will work with it now, which really? means it's basically all of them. Uh, not, I don't know if all banks were, but, but okay. it's, it's become acceptable in yeah. many banks with Visa, you know, right. with, with the number of, of 
yeah, uh, mainstream institutions. You should definitely get that group together. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll keep you on the list if you I, want to I, join. I would love, I'd love to be around, just fly on the wall, man. It'd no, be, we're all flies on the wall, but it'd be fun. Because you, you, you need a dumb shit who speaks for the rest of the world <laughs> like, to kind of ask well, the question and be like, no, hey, I, wait, um, yeah, excuse no. me, but... Um, <laughs> How no, does my car loan work? Well, but also, like, you know, look, I, I worked in politics. You know, ran the Western States for U.S. term limits and all their voter education in the 90s. And I worked for Fred Upton when he was a junior congressman. Uh, I worked for the American Enterprise Institute and the Acton Institute. So I, I had some work in politics back a long time ago. Yeah. Um, but the world's changed so much that I feel like a moron. Like, I, I just, like, yeah. I mean, the way that we got into monetary policy with Aaron was I made a crack. We were talking about surfing, his book, Surfing with Sartre, and I uh-huh. made a crack about, well, you know, they're printing money. And he goes, well, that's actually not actually how it works. <laughs> and I had no idea he, had, he was working on a book on monetary policy, and then I, I got an education. And I think I the, the listeners did. Um, but I think that's half the fun is actually being open to the fact that you don't know it. Right, which is when you learn the most, you know. Well, what strikes me, and I haven't read his book, and I want—I'm going send, to. Yeah, I'm you. going to read it because I am super fascinated, and I'm one of these people who, you know, when you're talking about budgets, I'm like, well, shit, if we can't do that in our house, how's it working? How do we make it work in the government? And you know, he seems very, uh, on the surface, at least what I'm what I've read on the cover of stuff in his books, like he doesn't seem concerned about inflation. Right, and he feels like we, hey, we know, we understand inflation now, the metrics and everything like that. And here's, and if that's true, that's awesome. But you can only test that over time. Yeah, I, mean, I think we're in some <laughs> uncharted territory in some yeah. ways too, right? And, well, this is a conversation I have with a friend who was very pro-Trump and was talking about the reason he loves Trump is because of the economy, his, his, his economic positions. Mm-hmm. And I pointed out, I said, well, do you know what our number one export is from the U.S.? It's basically our debt and our currency. Right. The entire yeah. world has to dollar. clear their trades in U.S. dollars, more right. or less. Right. And the you know what you're effectively. And Aaron's book is good at pointing out how how much that matters. You know, our debt is effectively create generates every time the Federal Reserve creates debits mm-hmm. to pay budgets that we don't have money for. They have to create corresponding credits. Right. And those credits are either sold as debt or turned into currency. Yeah. Um, very little of it's turned into currency. The Treasury manages that based on the velocity of money. They look at how much money people are spending, yep. and that's how they the kind of manage inflation. Yeah, exactly. But the debt gets sold, you know, to China, to right. all over the place. And China has historically been one of our biggest oh, uh, buyers I of debt. I told you when I was when I was in China. Yeah. I was staying in the same hotel where Hillary Clinton was the week before. Right. And it was so funny because it was on the you know whatever the what's the Asian time or the Chinese like Main Street Asian time yeah. yeah but is there like a Wall Street Journal version that's like the Asian one or something oh uh, I forget yeah there's well there's Financial Times maybe or yeah one anyways, of those ones yeah. it was one of the English speaking ones but it was like yeah. it was it was so funny because it was like Hillary to China please keep buying our bonds yeah 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 <laughs> Well, and and this is what we were talking about. I said, look, our number one export is based effectively our debt and our currency. Right. And, you know, understanding that what you're really selling is this promissory note. Exactly. It's this belief and trust in America. That we're going to still be here. That we will be, that rule of law matters. Right. That our leaders follow rule of law. Right. That this isn't some banana republic dictatorship. And right. that we're not going to screw around with our currency. Right. And when you start to erode that global trust. Yeah. This is why a global state people are like, well, we, we can just do it all in America. It's like, no, we can't. No, if no. you do business around the world, you realize how connected it is. I, in my yeah. opinion, you, you really need to be a global player. Well, and this is where, you know, <laughs> not to go down the rabbit hole, but it's like, 
this is where I feel like people don't understand. It's like, again, you pull on one thread, you know, rule of law. It's like, this is where, this is why judges matter. And, you know, activist benches versus, like, what is the actual statute, right? Right. And if I can just make shit up out of whole cloth to fit my whatever need. Regardless I, of which side you're on. Regardless which side you're on. You don't want politicized courts. Then you know what? That's that's going to erode confidence. You know, if you're not following the letter of the law, that's going to erode confidence in the fact that this is sustainable, period. Particularly if the judge disagrees with the with the legal with the statute, code, yeah. Does that judge still uphold the law? I mean, right. that's what a judge should be doing, regardless of their personal opinions. Right. It, exactly. We, we don't need right. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's that's a whole other freaking rabbit hole, like to yeah. the, and and another discussion. But it's a huge one, and it's a massive one to our 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 you know future as a nation and you know when when you say well are you a single issue voter i go no you know how could you be <laughs> you yeah. just can't be you can't be a single issue voter you can't can't like think that this is i need this so bad that i'm really to sacrifice all that right you know what i mean like it all has to work together right yeah and I think, um, yeah, I think the older we get, the more that becomes apparent, right? Yeah, and the more, you know, I think you become, I think everybody who's been our age is, is equally disgusted with both sides, you right. know, and, and, you know, you've probably spent a little time on both, and you're equally disgusted by how... Um, it's another set of really poor choices right. in the presidential election. Yeah, yeah, I mean, dude, what is this? Like, what are, what, Why really? do we have geriatrics running America yeah. as a simple, as and, a starting point? And it's just, uh... Like how many more times do we have to hold our nose? Yeah, you know, and um, so yeah. Hopefully, we can get out of this little thing. And you know, if we pull it back to the very beginning of this podcast and looking at the globe and the storm and everything, I think we're like in the middle of a freaking windstorm right now. We're in this is a giant windswell. There's a lot of disruption <laughs> yeah. and change. There's, yeah. there's a lot of like it's coming at you from every Chaos. angle. We're yeah. in this giant freaking windswell, and you know, but the storm's gonna blow through pretty soon. Hopefully, it'll clean up afterwards. You know, and we'll get some nice groundswell, make sense of shit. You know, and. And, and we could be back into a place. And how so. do we get those two dinghies on one line going the yeah. same direction? <laughs> yeah, how do exactly. we get, How do we get America? Yeah. You know, how do we get if, moving if, in one if, direction? If again? America is the boat that's sinking, and our dinghies that are trying to tow it to shore are pulling in different directions, how do we tie them up to the same line? Right. That's it. Right. That's I feel like you just wrapped this whole thing up in a big bow. Dude, do you like how I just packaged it? That I told was you amazing. I your your content <laughs> packaging, Chris. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> this has been fun. Thank you for coming back again. We'll, we'll keep doing this because yeah, if you don't mind, I no, really I love enjoy it this. every all the time, anytime. We're so close. We should just start our own little side podcast at some point if oh, we need. Oh, I got to tell you about the Adventure Club that we're uh, Gabe, myself, Pat. Uh, you're gonna like this. I'm not gonna talk about it on the podcast because okay. it's super confidential. <laughs> yeah, let's hear it. <laughs> Thank um, you. Well, this no, is... this is great, Chris. I really appreciate your time. And uh, these yours yours are some of the longest ones I do, mainly just because I enjoy the conversation. Oh, so well, much. thanks. Yeah. I, that means a lot, man. Yeah. That means I, I do the same. And look, you you, I'm not kidding. You have to come on mine. Your podcast is called. It's called People Who Surf. People Who Surf. And uh, like I've only done seven episodes. Yeah, but you just had eight. John Freeman on. No, I didn't. I, I had. <laughs> John Thompson on. Okay. Um, I'm gonna have John. You had okay. John Freeman. on. I had John Freeman on, but I saw something that you and John were. Was wasn't that you and John talking? And he was told. Oh, that, you know what it was. I went on Scott Bass's podcast. Okay, that's and, what it was. Um, and Bassy and I started talking about how pro surfing is so different and the world's blown up and we were just laughing, goofing off and but serious too. I'm like, hey, look, the whole pro surf model's been 
been blown, blown up. Our, I'm yeah. like, you know, today it's Mason Ho and Jamie O'Brien and whatever, and Bass is like, yeah, and Jonathan Wayne Freeman, I'm all, absolutely, he's a pro surfer. Top 20. <laughs> like, he's top 20. And so he put that on his page. <laughs> that was the best. Oh, I was, I was dying. I love that but guy. But it's totally true. Well, and and these, he started joking about, you know, if you're, like, here's a question. What, what's your go-to surfboard? My gosh, I have I have a I have a little fish that I shape myself. That is my board of preference. But honestly, it's where I surf. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I, the, my the wave dictates the board. Right. So. Um, but you're riding mostly short boards. I'm riding mostly, but I, I longboard San Onofre a lot. Sure, I have course. a couple good, really good longboards, and I I bought a mid ranger. Um, funny, I bought a mid ranger for my daughter. That's the question I was going to get to. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I and I fell in love with the thing, and it was so hard for me to get. You know, it's so hard for me to get off it right now. Right. Right, 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 right. You know, because it's such a fun board. So the reason I'm asking the question is, um, you're a great surfer, um, you know, former pro. You're still in good shape. I know you still surf well. Uh, most people who surf at your level will go to some version of a shortboard most of the time, unless it's yeah. like Sano and you're just going to log it. And right. Have, and do yeah, that's fun. I do yeah. that as well. I love yeah. longboarding. This mid-range thing, like... I was always embarrassed to even carry like you know uh-huh. one of those under my arm. Like you know, right. you just look like such a such a dork. Yeah. But I feel like you know between catch surf blowing up with foam boards and then John Wayne Freeman just selling the, the mid length <laughs> world tour. Yeah. How do you get on the Devin Howard and all we, that? We figured this out. Yeah. What's how, that? How do you get on the mid length world tour? I right? don't know, man. But I, I guess you just got to lobby the case, you know. But it's like, uh, it's th- look. I, I'm one of those people, like in the '90s, when when Slater's boards were like, going to the skeletal extreme. It was yeah. like I was one of the first people to just be like, "No, nope, this is not working." <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I'm going, and I had no qualms. And I, I remember surfing in a couple of events with some boards that looked pretty funny for the time, and people were just looking at me like, "You fuck!" And like I had one guy come up to me, I won't name him, but he was just like, "I can't believe you fucking beat me on that board." Like, <laughs> like I'm so embarrassed. He was so embarrassed, you know. And uh, I'm just like, well, you know, and a lot of people are going to be riding these pretty soon because, like, 90% of the world was um, was on the wrong equipment. And it was oh. so, you know, my interview with Chris Malloy that I did yeah, last yeah, week, yeah. it'll be out in a week or so. But he's like, you know, the, my biggest regret, he goes, all those years I spent, like, in the 90s, he goes, thrashing. At all these killer breaks, he goes, I was tra- I was on the world for traveling around for 10 years. He goes, I was riding the wrong fucking board. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I just, like, the biggest thing for me is just, I was explaining this to a friend who doesn't surf that much, just... Like the ways you can hide volume in boards now. Yeah. Like I ride five tens that have more volume oh, yeah. than mid lengths. Some mid, you know, because sure. you can just make them wider and yeah. there's all oh. kinds of better shapes and stuff. No, and that was I remember when I was at the magazine and you know when the when the machines came in to where you could actually measure the cubic volume. That was a game changer. Oh man! I remember calling MR and all these guys going up like, "Hey, dude, you could measure your cubic volume now with this." Yeah. I go. This is Which this is radical, right? Directly goes, translates into flotation. Totally, because yeah. he's like, oh yeah, because now if you know the number you want, you can displace it however you right. want for whatever condition, and you're in a, at least you're in a much better starting position. Well, even like the big wave boards, it used to be about length. Yeah. And now it's like I was at uh, at Shapers' uh, place in, in the North Shore. Uh huh. And uh, what's his name? Um, he always wins the Golden Donut Awards. Uh, oh, like the guy who eats it or something? Yeah, uh, like for the big wave stuff. Um, older guy, older than me. Um, great big wave surfer, but he's always getting killed out there. Um, is I think he like, his name. Is Famous. He North Shore uh, guy? Yeah. Huh. I'm trying to remember his name. But anyways, the boards they're shaping, 
you know, they almost have like the rails have like a step yeah. up to the deck now because yeah. they want the rails to be thinner, thinner but yeah. they still want that volume. And yeah. it's amazing what's what's yeah. possible. No, it is. I mean, we look, we're 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 actually about twenty five years into a surfboard complete renaissance where, you know, it's 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 the best of times, it's the worst of times because you can paddle out on anything and nobody's going to really say anything to you. Right. You know what I mean? Um, if you were around in 1993 and you tried to paddle out on anything other than a Kelly Slater little toothpick oh, or, or a longboard, yeah. like you, people looked at you like you were an alien. Well, you they know? say stuff to you. Yeah, get that thing totally out of here. Would. Yeah, you know what I mean, and that's how that was. That was that was the bottom right there. I just bought an Alex Nost pre-COVID, just before COVID. That's like a mid-length pintail uh, bonzer. And it is the most fun board in big waves. But when and even now, if I paddle out in bigger surf, uh-huh. I first get a lot of weird looks, and then people start asking me questions, and then everybody wants to know how it works because it's like, yeah, I, I think there's an evolution. In, there's curiosity. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's so funny. I I went down. I'm part of this thing. Um, I went down to Carlsbad a couple weeks back, and I brought my mid ranger, and I went down there because. Josh Kerr and Damian Hobgood were taking part in this hundred wave challenge thing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is the this fundraiser for boys to men. And so you gotta Dam- catch a ton of waves. You don't want to kill yourself. Yeah, these it. these yeah. guys are these guys are out there. Damian, you know, God love him, but you know, he's got his dad bod right now, you know? <laughs> and he's still on this tiny little toothpick board and, and he's like, you know, trying to go for wave number sixty seven and he's just oh, arms, arms are giving out off. and everything. Yeah. I paddle out on my rid range and I'm just like, you're getting and ten go, waves every two. I go, hey Damien, I go, I go, please try this board, <laughs> please try this, and I shove it to him, and he takes off and he went 99 miles an hour, like almost broke the sound barrier on this thing, <laughs> and the smile on his face when he came paddle back out, and I just told Josh Kerr, like Josh was sitting out there, and he's like, holy crap, look at him go, and I'm like, dude, I just took 10 years off his life right there, oh. and, you know, like he he's 10 years younger, you he know, discovered that there's other ways. It's, it's the yeah. fountain of youth, and he was ripping on the thing. And then Josh Kerr got on it, yeah. and he did a full-on air on the six ten mid range. Who makes who makes that? Or how did you shape it? No, you this it? one was uh, it's one I actually pulled off the racks out of the surf shed down in uh, Bird Surf Shed down in San Diego. Oh, oh, cool. And this guy Jeff McCallum made it. He's like a local San Diego guy. And, um, you know, last year was, I took part in that whole thing and when you raise a certain amount of money they're like hey dude you, you raise this much money you get to pull a board off the rack and you can go oh, pull wow. whatever you want off the rack so you pulled a 610 and so I ended up with a I was thinking it was going to be for my daughter yeah I just wanted something that wasn't a Floatier. long board but yeah. you know and uh because she's kind of getting into it and I ended up with this sort of 610 kind of high performancey looking fishy thing it's a quad yeah oh it's a quad it's I a was quad gonna ask if it was a and 20. and the thing is insane. Wow. It's one. Of the, it's one. Of the, I've had more fun on that board. Any wave, you know, from Sano to Lowers to Three Arch Bay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it kind of ha- it, it works in, and so I'm like, gosh darn, how do I get off this thing? Can we actually go surf sometime? Yeah, it'll be fun. All right, let's do yeah, that. We'll, we'll, we'll get John Freeman and Gabe and. I know. I've yeah. never met John Freeman in person. Oh my God, he's he's, he's so better. Funny. He's as good in person or better than he. He is DM'd in, me. Yeah. You know, he DM'd me. It was so nice. He was so cool. He's like. Um, hey, he wrote the best Surfer Mag article ever, the one about Sly Dog and Frog. <laughs> yeah, it changed yes. my life. <laughs> yes, the, uh, the Dharma Bums. Yeah, that goes, is literally, no. <laughs> Sly reposted that recently when Surfer went out, and I was like, I said the same thing. My favorite article in Surfer ever, partially because I know them, but also yeah. it's just a bitching story about yeah. these guys living the dream, it, basically. It's, you know what's funny is, honestly, I mean, I heard every major pro you could think of yeah. and, you know, 
And I get, I still get more people coming up to me about that one going, hey, that changed my life, dude. Like, I became like that. You don't understand what that did to me. And I'm like, really? They're like, that yeah. is why we, we don't surf yeah. for competition. I mean, competition right. was, was, was a bad thing, but it's, you know, people was, surf because they want that life. They was, want the slide fight, off, was, Peter don't Pan. Don't fight the fun. Yeah, man. don't fight the fun. Don't fight the fun. That, we say that a lot around here, and yeah. I give Sly Dog credit for it. I, yeah. I mistakenly gave Pat Parnell credit for it, and Sly Dog, who doesn't point out many mistakes, said, uh, bro. He's like, hey, bro, I got it documented right here. It's right here. <laughs> so good. Oh, so good. Chris, thank you, man. This yeah. has been really good. Okay. We get well, to surf. We're going to have some fun, and yeah. um, we'll do this again. Awesome. Thank this, you, Dave. Yeah, don't worry. This has been the Kick Aspirational Podcast. The most important thing about the Kick Aspirational Podcast is that you practice it. This is not a spectator sport. Whatever you do this week, please get out there and be Kick Aspirational.